Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Thanks for joining us on our second YouTube live episode of National Fire Radio Live tonight. Uh, Rob and I have Battalion Chief Nick Martin, Salisbury, uh, South Carolina. North Carolina. North Carolina. I can't read tonight. Chief, thanks for joining us, brother. It is a true, true pleasure to have you on with us tonight. Um, I appreciate it. Thanks for spending the time. Yeah, man. I know we've been trying to do this, you know, a couple times and try to link up in person a few times, but, um, you know, I'm, de I'm glad that we're definitely able to, to get it together here. Yeah, you and I had gone back and forth a little bit and, uh, you know, before the whole COVID outbreak, you know, we always tried to get guests into the studio. So it was trying to lock you down when you were coming to New Jersey, <laughs> New York region uh, and so on. But I did, uh, my first encounter with you was I snuck down to a training conference put on down in uh, central Jersey, down at the Jersey Shore. Yeah, um, that you had done, and uh, that was put on by the uh, uh, Bobby and the the guys from uh, Shut Up and Train, and and so on. But uh, and that was great because I got to sit through and really get a feeling for um, for you and your class and what you offer um, on the training ground. So I appreciate that. It was a great night, man. You did uh, did a great work there. Yeah, it was a cool event. So I want to start. You know, I'm sure a lot of people follow you. A lot of people know you on social. Um, you've had quite the career in the fire service, and you have so many more years left in you. I can only imagine where the ride's taken you from here. But I want to start with something. You provided me with a with an article back in 2010, um, which I read, which just gave me a little insight into your background, your upbringing, and so on. So I had something to go on um, as we got into this. And I want to read the last paragraph of that article to you, if that's all right, because I want to get your take on this, and I want to roll into it this way. And it says, every fireman goes to fires, and we all work with other firefighters. What my career has taught me so far is to learn everything you can from both. Every fire has a lesson to teach you, and every firefighter knows at least one thing you don't. Unless you take action, this knowledge is forever lost. There are more mentors in my career who have passed away and that have taught me to get it while you can. Take advantage of every moment in the fire service and in the firehouse. Learn what you can and share everything you learn. I think that is a fantastic paragraph and a great way to end that article and a great way to open tonight's conversation. Um, Nick, thanks for joining us. Let's hear your story, man, because what you're doing now is you're paying it forward. You know, you've had quite the career starting at 14 years old and moving your way through the fire service through several different departments from volunteer to career. Um, you are giving back. You give back every day. I, I follow your content. A lot of people on the internet follow your content. They know who you are. You've made a name for yourself in the fire service. Why is it important? Why is it important? Why is it important to take all the experiences we've had over the years, whether, you know, my personal experience formed to shape me who I am or your experiences? And why do you feel it's so important to give back to this job? Well, I mean, you know, First off, I, I appreciate all the compliments and everything, and I'm, I'm glad you read that because I didn't even remember what it said, but I'm like, man, whoever said that is pretty smart. Ten years but, ago, uh, brother. Ten years ago. But, you know, my, my career is a total accident, man. I mean, you know, I had no idea what was going to happen or when it was going to happen or, you know, and all the steps of the way just happened, you know, and uh, it's crazy to, to reflect back on them and and, and, and how, how they've fallen together, or, or in some cases, how they haven't fallen together, or to compare them to other people's careers and, and, and things like that. But, you know, I started out in a very, uh, a very small environment. Like I was telling you when we were on here earlier, you know, I, I started out in my hometown. I was 10 minutes from Center City, Philadelphia. You know, Philly was, you know, the big job um, around me when I grew up. There really weren't 
very many other paid fire departments or anything like that. You know, um, my brother was on, was a, was a, was a firefighter. And I was just one of those kids that like said in that article, man, like, I don't ever remember a time when I wasn't around fire trucks, you know, like whatever age it is, you remember things like that's when I started hanging out at the firehouse. And I was just, you know, I was indoctrinated into, into a lot of that culture, you know, very young, you know, I was the kid that rode his bike or ran to the firehouse to raise the doors while the whistles going off, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, we were, that department was running like 200 calls a year back then. And, and to be honest, I don't think it's that, that much busier now, even though it's actually a very densely populated area. Um, there's just so many departments, but you know, I, I started out in a small town, 200 call a year fire department, and I've had the fortune to be on some some pretty busy places that, for better or worse, have taken me some to some pretty tough fires. And and I just I think it's just that realization that, you know, no matter whether you're getting paid or not, no matter what whether your rank is, no matter whether you're busy or slow or you know you've been doing this for three minutes or three decades, you know, the the worst fire of your life could happen 10 seconds from now. Um, and there's just no stopping that domino once it starts to fall. Um, and, and having been a part of that a few different times and, and seeing that go well or, or not go well, um, you know, I think really kind of gives me that mindset. And, and I can't, you know, I don't know anything. You know, I, I, everything, you know, if I know something, then that doesn't tell you anything about me. That, that tells you about the people I've been around, right? right. Because you know, I, I, I just haven't been, I haven't, I haven't been around enough, I guess. I don't, I don't know who has, whatever. I mean, you know, what I've learned, I feel like I truly learned from going to fires with other great firefighters. And, you know, so I'm, I'm a, I'm a product of, of what they taught me. And it's, it's scary to me to watch some of the experience that's exiting the fire service. I mean, I guess fire, I guess there's always experience exiting the fire service, but it just seems to me that like, there's been this very critical juncture in, in generations, you know, over the past, you know, 10 years, um, where like, you know, these snotty backstep, you know, uh, three quarter boot wear and tail riding fire firefighters that taught me like that generation is, is, is largely exiting. Yeah. Um, you know, and I don't know, man, I just, I just believe in, 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 in paying it forward like that, I guess. I love, you know, reading, reading some of the backstory on you and so on. I mean, you and I, uh, we did chat before we went live tonight. And, you know, you came in the service in 94. I came in in 95. Um, it was right around that same time where enclosed cabs were starting to pop up more and more, but guys were still riding the back step. It was the transition between hip boots, you know, and, uh, and you know, bunker pants um, and so on. And so it was, a, it was a pivotal time in the, in the American Fire Service. And enough to catch some of that tailboard riding stuff at the end with some of those guys that I look up to as um, just OGs of the fire service for me um, and so on. How much of an influence did that have on you? Well, we're going to go live here, Jeremy, because I'm in my small space in the house where I'm allowed to have fire paraphernalia. Only, yeah, I got one of those yeah, small spaces. That's too. this wall. <laughs> that's where I get to have it. It's upstairs and it's five feet long. But, you know, this is my original, my first helmet I got issued. And the first coat I got issued, right? And it's this awesome. old school, you know, flat. Where where is the flannel, right? So it's the old. I don't know if you can see the old flannel lined, oh, yeah. you know, crap. And uh, it came with collar? the huh? The corduroy oh, collar. Oh, please. Yep. All, all day long. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. All I, day long. 
Yep. So, you know, I still got, that's the first code I ever had. I bought it for 25 cents um, at like the sale they would have in the Bay when they were getting rid of stuff. Um, but yeah, my, and it, it came with, it came with a pair of three quarter boots. Right. And, uh, and we were riding um, and I got pictures of them somewhere here. I plugged my technology back in. Um, we were riding uh, like I, Han and Persh fire trucks. Right. And when I first joined, all of them were open cab rigs. And uh, as a junior firefighter, you had to ride the back, right? Because, and I mean the tailboard, because they had to reserve the jump seats for the air packs, you know, with the air packs for the senior guys that were pack qualified. So the safe spot for the junior firefighter, uh, an all irony in the mid nineties, uh, at least where I was, was riding, riding the tailboard. So, um, I am absolutely thrilled that I, I got to I got to participate in that and and then the, the the deep irony is is I remember like when they gave me these three quarter boots and stuff and told me to ride the tailboard I'm like this is stupid I want to be a real fireman right. why don't I get the pants like the other guys why can't I ride inside the cab right and now yep. I'm like miss that right? the best moments. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I yeah. love them too. There's such like a resurgence in this, right? Like I, I even see like young guys now with 10 years in that are like, Oh, I want to get back to the way it used to be with those three quarter boots and those long coats. Look at the, look at the culture of long coats. Yep. Long coats are back, man. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yep. The, the pride in uh, the pride in your leather helmet. I mean, shit, these, you know, the Euro trash talk, but uh, you know, it, it's nice. To, it's nice to see because I think all of that goes to the culture, right? All of that goes to the fuel that makes guys want to be better. Right. I mean, it's, it's all that conversation. And I was fortunate like you were chief to, to be a part of that, at least catch the tail end of it where I was. Yep. Yep. No doubt. So, going forward, man. I mean, you grew up in a firefighting family, I believe, right? Your, uh, your father, your brother, yeah, my, my, they were both in the volunteers, you know, my, my father and my brother both kind of, you know, started and, um, you know, I honestly, my, my brother was in it. He was the first one, you know, okay. and then I got into it and I think my dad jumped into it because, you know, I mean, because he wanted to impress his kid, I think, but he enjoyed it. <laughs> That's good. And so that was in Pennsylvania, right outside of Philadelphia. Yep. Del Delaware County, Pennsylvania, Swarthmore, Pennsylvania. And then what, you realized that the road was going to take you down a career path, correct? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I knew that's what I wanted to do, right? So I was in high school when I started, um, and then I graduated, and, you know, I very quickly got, uh, got hired, um, you know, right out of high school. But, you know, so like I said, Philly was the big job, and, like, that's where I used to buff fires, like, all the time, like, all weekend long. Like, my, me and my dad, like, had the 97 different Bearcat scanners fired up you know, North fire band, South fire band, you know, we're running into Philly, man. And I, I still remember seeing like some of the like epic block by block conflagration warehouse fires like Philly would run. Um, but, you know, so back when it was early, er, you know, late nineties, early two thousands, there was basically no way to get on there for me. Right. I mean, I, they just weren't hiring. You had to be a city resident to even get an application and it just wasn't going to happen. So I, I got picked up on like these smaller places that were beginning to have like one or two um day guys or one, one or two guys right. 24s but that, that's all it was it was it was two or three people um in the firehouse and most of it was probably to make sure the ambulance got out um and i just realized like you know 
I, this, this isn't really going anywhere, right? I mean, you know, there's no promotion here. There's only one fire station, so you're not going to work anywhere else. Um, and we don't run very much. So, you know, I was actually one of the, one of the first place I worked at, um, this place called Longwood in, in, uh, in uh, Chester County, Pennsylvania. One of the senior guys there, you know, was telling me how he used to go ride down in PG County at this place called Seat Pleasant. And he's telling me all about Rescue Squad 8 and, you know, PG County things and all that. I'm like, I'm right, I'm right up your alley, buddy. What's, you know, how do you get there from here? And apparently it was just turned right out of the firehouse and keep going because the firehouse was on Route 1. But um, so I, you know, That's yeah, good. so I, I, I jumped on, right? And I, you know, I joined Seat Pleasant um, Company 8 in Prince George's County um, in like 2000, I think it was. And uh, I was just kind of going back and forth. Like I was an hour and a half away from me. So I would just like go down there for two, three days at a clip um, and just, you know, ride. And it was an engine company and a rescue squad, a re heavy rescue company. Um, and it very, 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 very busy and a world, world different, right? Like yeah. I came from Southeastern Pennsylvania. We had, you know, in the mid nineties, $500,000 pumpers with hand painted gold leaf and, polished wooden handled axles and everything had a place and every and every place had a thing i went down to squad eight and you opened the door so this is a heavy rescue squad on the capitol beltway and you open the door to this i'll see if i can pull a picture up on my computer here to this like old beater walk-in rescue squad and like on like the original 32 b's from hearst like fell out with like one two by four and i'm like and they're like that's the cribbing we don't use that right you know i remember um you know, going down the road in the back of squad eight, all the tools were just on random shelves to the left and right of you. And there was no kind of bracketry or anything like that. And the only thing I can liken it to is like the movie Twister at the end when they're in the barn and the tornado's coming and they realize right, that right. barn <laughs> surrounded by farm tools. That's what it was like going to a box uh, in the back of squad eight. Um, but it was absolutely awesome, right? And I was, uh, I'm seeing if I can find a, it, I, it, I How was old were you? Here, uh, like, you know, so I guess then, what am I, 20, 21 or something like God, that? God, I mean, that you talk about needing a hook in the fire service. Holy dude, God. fish, fish on, fish yeah, on, absolutely. dude. I was, I was in, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I, I start out there and then eventually, you know, there was, there was some other, uh, there was some other things going on just kind of in the county politics there or anything. I guess that's not for this conversation, but um, you know, I decided I'm going to make the move and I'm going to go to Kentland. So, um, you know, Kentland was about two fire stations away. I was intimidated as anybody's ever been to walk through those doors. You know, even though I had already been volunteering two departments away, I had already run fires with Kentland, but I hadn't run fires as a Kentland guy. That's a big right. difference. You know what I'm saying? Um, and I knew some guys. So, you know, I, I decided to make that move. Um, I think I transferred to Kentland and like, I don't, like January of like 01 or 02 or something like that. And, um, you know, again, like, you'd like now I had two hooks in, right? And uh, like six months later, I told my girlfriend, I'm like, yeah, so, you know, I think I'm going to quit my job and move to this firehouse in Maryland. And I just, <laughs> <laughs> I just reversed roles. So like before I was living in Pennsylvania and like going to hang out at Kentland and I just changed it up and like moved into Kentland and went home to work uh, until I could, quit my, you know, I quit my firefighting job there and I got picked up in um, uh, Fairfax City, Virginia. Nice, nice. And so 
from Fairfax City, right? You were was that a that was just a, a short stint, right? Before you ended up heading over to uh, Washington D.C. No. Yeah, so Fair, Fairfax City is a lot of people probably heard of Fairfax County, right? Because right. you know, huge Beltline fire, or Beltway Fire Department, um, and so Fairfax City is two stations in the middle of Fairfax County, and it is a separate fire department, but it operates as one fire department. Same general orders, same riding assignments, you know, same funk. You wouldn't know the difference on a fire ground, um, um, but you know, it was because it was a smaller department, it was easier to get hired. So I got picked up there real quick. Um, I worked on a truck and a rescue company there for about a year. And like how I got in DC, like you got like my whole career is an accident. Like, oh, I'm at Kentland now. This is cool, but like this happened by accident. And then I'm like, oh, this is cool. I got a real firefighting job. I work for a real fire department now in Virginia. And this, I'm doing this now. Okay. And then I wake up at the firehouse one morning. We had a, we actually had a, we had a box. We had a small fire um, right down the street off like Pinebrook Avenue or something like that. And it would think it was like, a, it was like at 3.30 or four in the morning, right? And we come back and like um, everybody cleans up real quick and a bunch of guys are leaving. And I'm like, where are you guys all going? They're like, oh, we're going to pick up applications in DC. DC's hiring. I'm like, well, that sounds kind of cool. I guess I'll go. I got nothing so, to do today. Yeah, right? I'm like, I'm not doing anything. And <laughs> um, so I decide I'll, I'll go. And um, so I go, right? And of all things, um, we go to Engine 11 uh, and Engine 11, Truck 6, Battalion 4 to pick up applications because you had to go to one of the firehouses and one of the other Kentland guys was working at Engine 11. So we got there and like we were standing out in the cold and I mean, you know, it's a crappy neighborhood, like people are throwing things at you and like all that kind of thing. And well, that's where I picked up my application. I got hired stupid quick. It was like, it was like three, three, four months later, I think wow. I was in the academy. It wasn't nothing. <laughs> Right? It was so not I know, it's now. crazy lucky. Um, and, and three, four months later, I'm in the academy, and like engine engine eleven and truck six is where I spent the majority of my time once I got on the job. So how, kind of how long did the academy take back then? Well, they I, I don't know. I, I think they were they needed people like that or something. So we had a, we actually had a joint class. So it was class three three eight and three three nine together. So it was two different class numbers, but run together and it was like 50 people um and almost all of us had uh were, were coming from another department or volunteers so we all had emt so they basically just made if you already had emt they just made you do the fire stuff right so i just had to do the fire cat or like the, the three-month fire academy it was like three months long I, I got hired i started april 9th and i or not april august 9th and i graduated i think november 24th so it wasn't long at all. So you want to talk about being all in. I mean, you went from living at Kentland during the night to going to the academy and then working a full-time job, right, in D.C. Yep. when you got hired in D.C. So you are surrounded 24 hours a day by busy departments. Yeah, and, and against all advice, against all advice, you know, right. still riding fire trucks at Kentland right. at night during the academy. And they made it very clear to, like, that's not necessarily against the rules, but if you get hurt, you're going to lose your job, yeah. <laughs> right? So, you know, but hey, you know, fire trucks got to get out the door, you know what I'm saying? That's, that's an incredible mantra. I mean, you know, but you look at it, man, the hooks, you said you had two hooks in, and that makes total sense, bro. When you immerse yourself in a culture like that, you're all in. Yeah. Yeah. Love well, that. you know, and, and I, I mean, 
and not not to get on the, the Kentland soapbox, except I'm gonna, um, you know, the great that that fire department has uh, an impenetrable bubble around it, and, and yeah. people feel very intimidated to walk through those doors, right? I did too, um, you know, because of the kind of people and the kind of performance that comes out of that fire department. But, you know, that fire department will give anybody who truly has heart a chance, right? Uh, and, you know, I actually posted something, not knowing I was going to talk about this tonight, I posted something on my social media about, you know, heart um, last night and, and Bob Gallione from New York, his quote. Um, but, I mean, I, I, I have, and, and, and I say this with all love, I have watched some of the weirdest human beings in the world come into that firehouse, right? I mean, just these straight misfit toys. And you're yeah. like, what is this? Um, and, and then you find out that this guy has more heart than right. anybody you've ever met. And, and regardless of any other assumption you would make about him, they're one of the best firefighters you could ever work alongside. Um, and that department will give you that chance. If you've got heart, they will give you everything else. And if you don't have heart, you're, you're going to find your stuff on the sidewalk. You know, it, well, it just is the way it is. Absolutely. I mean, one of, one of my best guys and, and one of my best friends to this day and age, I was told uh, to, to not bring him in the firehouse. You know, when, when he, he was a younger kid, he's 10 years younger than me. And, and they said, you don't want this guy. He's a troublemaker in high school. You don't want him. And I said, well, maybe he needs a place to belong. Yep. Said, maybe he needs a place to be. And maybe we yep. can give him what he needs. And he came in, turned out to be a fantastic fireman. He's yep. a, hell of a hell of a good dude. And, uh, and I, he's one of my best friends to today. And, you know, I'm so glad that we gave him that shot because if we didn't and he didn't subscribe to our methodology and didn't find he had to have heart, he had to fall in love with it. I mean, it's so important. Yeah. And, but you know, so what many guys are, I think so many guys are freaking half pregnant these days though, too, which, drives, <laughs> yeah. which drives me up a fucking wall. Well, yeah. I was just going to say one of the things that's nice about Kentland is that you give the guys a chance, but you, you have the standards and you hold everybody to it so that if they're not, if they're not meeting that cut, they're out the door. I think, like you said, Jeremy, about being probably in half, half pregnant. But like, how many times do we? Oh, let's give them another chance. Let's give them another chance. We do let's it give all the time. Chance. And then we the all, people who are there with the right reasons, they get discouraged because there's all these, you know, essentially people are shitbagging it. So. Well, it's the it's the mentality too. The hey, we need people. Yeah. Like what? Well, yeah, we need people, but we need the right people. I mean, you know. Mm -hmm. I, it's not just filling seats, man. It's that's that just goes along the mantra of checking boxes. It's bullshit. So many departments, career and volunteer, are willing to lower their standards to get another warm body, and they think they're doing the right thing. They think they're doing right. They're tearing their organization apart slowly, and they're pushing their best people outside of the door. That 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 is just just what happens. Um, but. You know, I'll tell you what, you know, what I think you talk about getting hooks. I think what really hooked me about that is, you know, there are lots of busy fire departments out there, places that run calls or run fires, right? You know, but you go to the firehouse and like, what's going on at the firehouse? Nothing. It's dirty. It's messy. Everybody's sitting in their own corner or in their own room. Like, there's just no heartbeat to it, right? And, you know, I think what really hooked me about Kentland is I discovered that, you know, everything else aside, like the only way you ended up there was if you really wanted to be a great firefighter. Like if that's what you wanted to do with your life, if your heart and soul was in it, that's what led you to Kentland. It just wasn't an area, like people didn't grow up in the neighborhood and join that. Like there was like two or three guys left that grew up in the neighborhood and had joined it. Everybody else came there of choice because they were looking for a certain kind of environment. So, you know, what you ended up with around the kitchen table 
was people from, you know, all over the country and really all over the world. I mean, I fought fire there with guys from Japan, from uh, Denmark, you know, from Germany, from Norway that literally come over and, and go through the application process to be able to come ride, you know, for a couple weeks. And, and so you're getting all this experience and that's all it is. It's just nonstop talking shop, running fires, take care of the rigs, take care of the firehouse, talk shop, run a fire, repeat. That's pretty much all it is. And it's not, it's not a grind because that's all anybody there wants to do. Well, <laughs> so, I also think I mean, it's great that you guys like take the opportunity because there's like uh, one thing I found out about Puget County firehouses and I can't speak for 33 because I've never, I think I transferred there once and then we got released. But like at one, there's no, there was never any like by 10 o'clock you shut the, this place down and everybody goes to bed. I remember going out and running lines with the guys at one o'clock in the morning just because they're like, hey, we can do this. Let's go. Let's let's put the engine on the air and go run lines. You'll yep. see what the apartment complex looks like with cars in it instead of being empty during the day. And just that mentality, I think, is awesome to have. And a lot of people don't don't understand. There's not a set schedule. There's nothing that says you have to be in bed by 10 o'clock when the firehouse is shut down with the sidewalks. Like, it's the perfect time. And I don't know how many times I've seen social media posts where guys are, even senior guys of the company coming back, and they're like, oh, it's... It's midnight, but you know what? Somebody's got a question about the bumper line. Let's go over it. Let's talk about the history of it, and let's put it out there. It It's a completely different time zone. Like, it's 8 o'clock. Like, they're probably just waking up right now. This is like breakfast time. You know what I mean? And it's kind of ironic because, like, you know, years later when I had moved out, you know, and I, I would be getting off duty in D.C., and so I would, you know, usually go to the firehouse, usually go to Kentland on my first day off and probably hang out to, like, four or five and really I had to roll out by three or four otherwise outbound traffic I wasn't going to make it home you know because of the traffic around there the traffic and, down there is obscene it's worse than oh yeah. yeah yeah so so but I would come in like I'd get in from work like I get there I get to Kentland about 6 a.m 7 a.m after getting relieved and everybody's in bed you know because they were up till three in the morning pulling lines or whatever from the night before so maybe some of them would start, unless we ran calls, unless we caught a bunch of runs, you know, maybe some of them would trickle out of bed around lunchtime or something like that. But it would be funny because, like, because of that schedule, I could be there from 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. and almost not see anybody. Yeah. <laughs> unless we ran runs because it was just not the, that's not, wasn't the heartbeat time. Like, you know, but. I, I love it. And, and this all screams culture, man. Like, like you said, there was a bubble. There's a bubble around 33, right? And the people want to be there are the ones that are making this happen you don't have anybody that doesn't want to be there yeah. you know and and so nick let's talk about culture a little bit because i think you probably went through a culture shock when you got down there you said you went to see pleasant first eight right and then from yeah, yeah. kentlin and then to move on i mean then you went you you know you're still uh, a kentlin member but you're you know dc and then from dc you go down south right to south carolina and end up in north carolina right so yeah. Talk about culture in these firehouses. I mean, you've been in some firehouses that just spew that uh, desire to be there, that want the right people. How do we, how do we create that culture, right? Because so many people reach out to us and say, "I'm in a shitty firehouse. I'm in a, I'm in a tough spot. I don't have the culture I need, but I'm limited because I can't get out of here yet." You know, what, what can these guys do or girls do to, to try to build that culture to? where it, it makes them better. And by making themselves better, they're making that company better. I mean, it, it's a tough thing to deal with. Um, you know, I think, I mean, I know I dealt with that at points in my career. It's why I made some of the moves that I did, yeah. um, you know, but uh, I think the biggest error that people make 
um, is that is trying to worry about things that they have no ability to change. Right. Talk I mean, about that. You know, I, 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 I'm, you know, no matter, I'm pretty high in my organization and, and no matter how hard I try, I'm not going to have a substantial impact on pay or on staffing levels or on when they're going to build us a new firehouse or, or any of those kind of things. Right. I mean, right. It's, you know, so anytime I waste, um, concerning myself with that or complaining about that is, is exactly that. It's a waste. It's unproductive. It's not going to result in any, in any improvement in that area. And all, and if it does anything, it's just going to lower the morale of those around me. Because, you know, if you are any kind of leader in your organization, whether that's a formal position or whether it's an informal position, like just one of the senior guys or just somebody that people listen to, you know, if that's you that's just out there that's just spewing the venom and pointing out the problems, then that's all the guys, that's all the guys here is, oh, it, oh man, we, I, I guess it's true. It is that bad, right? You know, so, I mean, all you can worry about is what you have the control. And, and I mean, I think yeah. that concept that, that each of us has a, a sphere of influence that, that you can control, um, you know, you got to worry about your own front step, man. I mean, if you're a probie backstep firefighter, honestly, right now, about the best thing you can worry about is you. What's your skill? What's your setup? What's your performance on a fire ground? But you got to worry about you, right? You're, you're, a, you're as a rookie, you're not going to change anybody else right now. Now, if you start doing really well and you carry yourself in a certain manner and your performance on a fire ground uh, is at a certain level, people are going to start paying attention, right? You know, and maybe now you can take that to your company. Maybe now you're the senior guy on your company. Maybe you promote to driver or lieutenant. Or, or something like that. And maybe now you can, you can take your individual passion and bring it to three or four other people at a company level, right? And now maybe the, maybe the tides rise, right? And, and you know, the t rising tide lifts all boats. And see, that's, that's where change um, really hits the ripple effect because you got to understand when you get better, either as a company, uh, as an individual, or as a department, the fact that you are better is in comparison to somebody else. You are better than somebody else. You gotta realize that's uncomfortable for this guy. That's you right. know what I'm saying, right? So when you, when you step it up, uh, the other people around you have two choices, or I guess they really have three choices. They can say, yeah, I guess we suck now, um, which most people aren't gonna accept. Or they're gonna say, no, 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 you get back down here with us. Come back down to where we're comfortable, right? Don't you go, don't you go raising the expectations here for everybody, or, they step up their game. That's right. right? And, and, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of contention and a lot of drama in the Beltway Fire Department sometimes, PG County. You don't have to look very far to find that in PG County. But what I will say there is that that was always the environment where the rising tide lifted all boats, right? You know, we had all kinds of weirdos and slugs and, and, and problems and things like that. But, you know, all, all in general, when somebody stepped their game up, everybody else stepped their game up. There wasn't this like, you know, bitching, or there wasn't this like, no, 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 you come back down here. We're not going to be that good. You know, that kind of thing. Like, and so that's why I think, you know, one of the things that really shocked me about that area or really, I think was, I'm so glad that I got to be a part of is, is the speed and aggression and competitiveness um, in those departments, you know, you, lose, you know, yeah. If you're, if you know what, if you're a homeowner whose house is on fire with their kid trapped inside, having a couple engine companies compete, for putting your fire out is a pretty good thing. It's like you know the gangs in New York, man. Are you kidding right. me? Yeah. Who wants the exactly. job? Who wants the pipe? Absolutely. You ever notice one of the numbers on the front of those jerseys or what? You know, it's a 33, right? Is that right? <laughs> yeah, look, watch it again. 
I will. I will. That's fantastic. <laughs> That's good, man. I like that. Well, I think it's contagious, man. You know, you got to, before you can really worry about the institution, you got to worry about yourself. And uh, one, of the, one of the comments, Dennis Riley on our, our chat says, sometimes you have to focus on yourself and what you can do to improve yourself before anything else. You know, yep. I, I think sometimes it's easier to um, cast doubt or throw stones before you've got to look at yourself and say, man, I got to pick up my game. I have no right to, to bitch and complain if my game's weak. Absolutely. I mean, what, what, you don't have a leg to stand on. You don't, have right. a leg to, you don't have a leg to stand You've got to always, and we were talking about it before, you know, dirty laundry or whatever. I mean, you know, look, I, I, you can't be around the fire service for very long and not have had a fire where you screwed up or not have had a, a personnel issue or not have had some kind of egg on your face, right? Uh, I, I've had it on my, I mean, you don't, you don't have to look hard to find the, the problems that I've had in my career or, you know, where I haven't done the right thing. You have to own it. Yeah, you, you, you have, you have to, because you know what? It, when you own it, you set an example for other people of don't do this. You set an example for other people of you, if you do this, own up for it. And you set, and you know what else you do from anybody that's trying to be the hater? You take their power away from them. That's because right. when you own it and when you step out there and say, yeah, you know, I screwed that up. I, you know, I was absolutely worse. I was at my worst that day. What else? I mean, what else do you want me to say other than I'm sorry? You know what I'm saying? That's it. Yep. I agree. I agree, brother. You got to own it. No doubt. And to get where you are this day and age, I mean, that's, that's really the lessons learned right over time. And, you know, coming up through these companies, Kentland and, and DC and so on and some busy houses in DC. I mean, tactically speaking, you've been through a lot of fires. You've done a lot of different work, um, every type of discipline you could imagine. And being in these departments, I mean, Kentland, I think they're doing what they were like upwards of like seven. I remember, because you and I are similar, like I didn't even know the whole bunking program was a thing, right? When I was in high school, I didn't even have an email address. The internet had just come out like my junior, senior year of, uh, of high school. And then I go off to college. So I didn't even know PG County existed. I probably would have been down there in a heartbeat, you know, yep. Yep. Um, and so on. So that's an interesting conversation for me because, you know. I was at LaCroix, by the way, just in case anybody's listening. That's <laughs> mine or not. <laughs> Fine or not. But I'll say, though, you know, you, you've had this ability to find yourself and put yourself in departments that I think pushed and challenged you as an individual. Yeah, I mean, and, and like, it, totally by accident, though, right? Like, all I knew was I wanted to go to more fires, and I yeah. wanted to get more experience, right? And that led me to Kentland. And then, so, because I wanted to go to fires and more experience, and there were a lot of senior DC guys at Kentland, like that led to me like, oh, I'm gonna go take that test. You know, in the application, when that, that morning when I found out they were taking applications, you know, but you know, the, even the companies that I got assigned there or the roles that I got into there, I feel like I just, I feel like a lot of times I just went with the flow. Like I just, I remember, you know, I, I we had a little, we had a little bit of a hook, um, you know, with, with station assignments at the end of the academy. I'll just leave that where it lays. But, you know, I remember getting the phone call and they're like, where do you want to go? And so I'm like three, four months, you know, into the academy. There were guys that were in the academy with me that were so buffed out on D.C. They could have told you the history of every company, their addresses, who the captains were. Like they already knew. Everything. And I'm like, I realized at that moment, like I'm about to graduate from a fire department. I don't really know anything about. I don't I don't know where I want to go. So my answer was a busy truck company. And, you know, so, I mean, that's, that's how I got where I got, you know, um, but it was really just kind of by accident or I guess by association. But I love that though. I mean, that kind of sums up what you've been doing. 
but I mean, you, you follow the passion and good things happen, right? I mean, yeah. you put yourself, you know, you make, I'm a firm believer, there's a thing as luck, but there's also a thing that you make your own luck, you know? I think too yeah. often it's easier to sit back and, and blame or point the finger instead of making your own uh, decisions that greatly impact your life and who you become. So on the tactical side, I mean, I know you do a lot of teaching now. You have your, um, your tactical command class with that, uh, that I sat through. Uh, and so on um, and so forth. You're involved in a bunch of conferences and so forth. Why? Why? I mean, I started the whole podcast tonight about talking about making sure you give it back. And we've been going through your your pedigree of, and, and building the culture of where you're coming from, where you've come from, how it shaped you. How did you get to the point of realizing that it's time to start giving back to the fire service through your training and teachings? By accident. <laughs> I mean, We're gonna, you know, this this podcast is named by accident. Yeah, right. I mean, well, I mean, yeah. so here's what it here's what it is. So, like, you know, back when I was in Pennsylvania, right? Um, you know, I was one of the I was an officer at my volley house and all that, and like, I kind of quickly got like into the training officer role there, and like, I didn't know what that was, and I'm like, okay, I guess I run drill night now, and so I was kind of doing that, and then you know, um, about the time I graduated the academy in in DC. Um, you know, there were a couple guys that were starting to do some, some teaching, like, you know, not at fire academies, kind of like, you know, the early stages of what there's a lot of now, like groups, you know, going around. Um, and it's like, you know, I, back then I was, I was pretty good at the rescue stuff. And uh, I was, I rode the rescue engine a lot. And I was kind of involved in that early transition to a full rescue company. And I was pretty good at like rope stuff. And, uh, you know, I got an invite to go, hey, we, we need to do this rope class for these guys. You want to come help? And I went and did this ropes class. And one of the guys I ended up doing it with um, was a guy out of uh, Rescue 3, you know, in the Bronx. So I'm like a real rescue guy. <laughs> and so I'm, I met him and kind of, you know, learned some things from him. And, you know, that was kind of that class went well. And it just kind of snowballed into one another thing and then another thing and then another thing. And I, I guess, you know. I, I have always just, I have always just been kind of passionate about wherever I'm at at the moment. Um, love the one you're with kind of thing. Like, you know, for, for a long time, you know, probably the majority of my career on the rig, I, I was mostly on truck companies and I was very into forcible entry was, was my, I love the, I love Brian riding the bar position. That's what they call right. the irons in DC. You know, so I love running the bar and uh, I love the forcible entry challenges and I loved like the thinking of it and like all that kind of thing. And like the, the, just like kind of like the physics or the mechanics of it. And so I got involved in teaching like a lot of forcible entry. And that's, I did that for like a long, a long time teaching on the road, you know, hands-on and classroom stuff about forcible entry. Cause that's like what I was doing at the time. Um, and so I still have a lot of passion for that kind of stuff. Now I'm going to talk about that in a thing on Saturday, you know, forcible entry stuff. But um, you know, now, you know, I'm, I, I'm kind of doing that with the command thing. And there's a whole, there's a whole story kind of behind that. Um, but, you know, I've been a battalion chief, a career battalion chief now for like whatever, you know, whatever it's been eight, nine years or something like that. Um, you know, and I, I, I'm very passionate about that position and, and what I think it's not being and what I think it should be. Um, and, you know, that's kind of what I'm speaking at now. So I guess, I guess what it is, why, why I'm, you know, I guess I'm just like a loud Philadelphia person uh, and I like to yell about what I'm fired up about so training was a natural in for that I guess <laughs> I get it I get it and you I mean, you've been training with some of the biggest names in this in the in the country man. I mean, and that's 
that's the thing. I mean, I just, I love running in these circles. I love sitting here tonight and catching up with you and really learning your story. I mean, you and I've only met once before we've chatted a bunch, but you know, it's fun to sit here and learn. And I, I was telling Larry last night on our, uh, our podcast last night that we did with Larry D. Camilla out of Houston and Stafford, uh, Texas. I told him, I said, this is a selfish endeavor for me because I have the ability, we made this platform and Rob and I have the ability now to sit down and talk with people and, we formalized what we enjoy doing. And uh, for me, it's, it's a freaking home run, man. And the fact that we can bring your story forward tonight um, and so on is just uh, truly awe-inspiring for me to, to be able to do that and to fil- facilitate that and get it out there. So yeah. I do appreciate everything that you're doing for us tonight, being here and so forth. Moving on, man, let's talk about your, your, uh, your DC days and then on to, uh, on to bigger and, and greener pastures maybe, or maybe not. Um, you know, moving out and going down to South Carolina. Uh, and then uh, that was the city of Columbia. And then from Columbia, you went to um, Salisbury, North Carolina. Uh, current, currently, you're a battalion chief in Salisbury, North Carolina. Yep. How's that going? Uh, it, it's great, man. I mean, you know, uh, I guess it all kind of starts back in D.C. And, and following the accident thing, I can see some guys asking, you know, yeah. why do I leave D.C. and stuff like that. I get asked that all the time. Um, so, you know, I guess it, what was it like 2012, 2013, you know, I just made Lieutenant, um, you know, I, I had just, so I, I'd just been promoted from Sergeant. I'd been a Sergeant on, you know, like truck seven and in the second battalion and I was having a great time. Um, and it was some very challenging times for DC. If you want to Google those times back then, um, we had a very, uh, a very vindictive fire chief. Um, you know, he had basically done some kind of shady retirement and then shady rehire uh into into the fire chief it was kind of a whole shady i can love that i can say this now because i don't work there this whole shady mayor fire chief thing and this guy was a straight zero and i mean he was i was watching him ruin people's lives right i mean i had friends that were getting demoted for wearing the wrong t-shirt um you know great fire officers that were getting like transferred. See, what you don't realize about a big fire department like that is there are all kinds of holes they can put you in, right? You sure. know, there was, a, there was a rank all the way from firefighter to deputy fire chief in the logistics division. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, they could find these, you know, I had offices I never knew what they did, like professional standards. I don't know what that does, but they would find these holes they could put you in. And if you, if you rocked the boat, then they would put you in one of these holes and nobody ever heard from you again, right? It was like, uh, it was like that movie where John Candy's in the armored truck thing and he's at the, he, they put him out at the dump or something. I make too many old dangerous, man. There, I, that that's what I think I'm making too many old movie references. That is a classic, brother. Yeah. I don't think, Eugene Levy, man. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? So I was worried they were going to put me in the dump, you know? And so I'm watching yeah. these guys get demoted. It was miserable. I mean, everybody was walking on eggshells. I mean, it was, it was a terrible couple of years, and you never knew when it was going to end, right? Well, that and, and like didn't they stalk the fire? Like, I mean, I remember that was one of the things, I, I and I remember reading it, and I asked a guy that, that worked down at uh, I think it was like thirty three and Truck Eight, and uh, yep. they said like he was he's like went around just stalking firehouses, like, and then oh, yeah. he had other people going around, like in a like undercover, know, yeah, just to see what the guys were doing, and I also yeah. I think it. They had that whole like, let's get a violent neighborhood and we'll stop the violence by putting firefighters on street corners. Oh, truck thirteen and truck seventeen are literally getting shot at with assault rifles. Yeah. 
right? And I mean, just sitting out there soft posting. Yeah. So, I mean, and so you didn't know when it was going to end, right? Because yeah. like, you know, the mayor was about to get, they thought reelected and okay, so this guy's going to get four more years and see like people look at their job two different ways. A lot of guys are like, man, I got 10 years left till I can retire. And I, I was in, I was literally in that position. I was thinking to myself, I'm like, you know, you only get so much time to do this job, right? I only get a certain amount of time in my life where I'm going to be uh, at the age, you know, in the physical shape where it's going to be my time to ride fire trucks, where it's going to be my time to do this job. And like, this is, this is going to be my time, you know, five, 10 years, you know, I'm going to go be the toilet paper king, or I'm going to be soft posting on a ladder truck that runs 200 calls a year. You know, I'm mean, like, like, so I just, you know, I, I just feel like I was about to miss it. Right. And so it was a pretty down in the dumps time to be on the job there. And, um, you know, don't get, don't get me, don't get me wrong. Like everything else was great. You know, all the guys in the firehouse, everything else was sure. great, but like the administration was ruining it for everybody. Um, and so, you know, I was teaching and I go to this place called Columbia that I had never heard of in my life. Um, and I taught a week long ladder company school. Uh, and I went down there and it was in South Carolina and there were palm trees and it was 80 degrees in February. Um, they didn't have to be EMTs. They didn't run barely any medical calls. And every, I'm telling you, every morning that these guys came into class, they were talking about a fire they were on the night before. I mean, <laughs> I, I was like, you guys run, you guys run fires like that? I didn't yeah, know that. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, they're running fires every day um, and, and they loved it. They were very, they, you know, so I, I, I was coming from this work where everybody's miserable and I'm watching these guys that are just beaming sunshine, you know, all day awesome. long. Yeah. Right. And, and so I'm like, man, you know, and uh, you know, I remember going back um, home after the class and talking to um, one of the other guys uh, who was a DC fireman that had taught with me. And we're like, dude, should we, shouldn't we just quit and go be firefighters? In Columbia? I mean, we were, I don't think we were really serious, but we we're talking about like just quitting and going down there to be backstep firefighters. And then, you know, so it was about seven months later, seven, eight months later, I get a text from one of my buddies and he's like, Hey, did you see this? And they're hiring a training chief. And then I get a phone call from one of the assistant chiefs. And he's like, Hey, did you see we're hiring a, a training chief? And see, here's, here's a thing that a lot of people don't know. Um, I discovered this uh, when I applied for some jobs, a lot of these jobs are decided before they post the application in case you ever thought that was true, but you didn't have confirmation. I'm going to confirm for you that that's true. Right. Uh, is it a lot wow. of times? Yeah. I mean, these decisions are a lot of times made before, and I don't think it's fair to the other applicants because I've been on the wrong side of that before where I sure. put my heart and soul into applying for something. And then I realized like, you didn't even read my application. You already knew who right. you're going to hire. So, right. you know, I kind of had an in and, and I get this job opportunity, um, sidestep. There may or may not have been a girl involved in this. That's neither here nor there, but back to the fire story. Um, but so I get this phone call. I remember I was at Kentland when I got the phone call and they're like, do you want the job? And I, I got off the phone. I was like, I'll get back with you. And I went into one of the offices and I talked to two of my best friends and I told them this was the first they heard of it. I had never told anybody cause I wasn't going to tell anybody if nothing was going right. to come up. So I tell them what's going on and they go, well, you got to take it. And so I guess that's when it, that was the nail in the coffin. Right? Yeah. And you know, in, in hindsight, um, 
I don't, did I make a good decision? I don't know. I mean, it's hard, it's hard to look on your life and say, no, nah, my life's been a series of terrible decisions. I don't think that's emotionally healthy, but you know, <laughs> would I, would I have been great in DC? Should I stay in DC? Yeah. I look at a lot of guys that, that, you know, I was kind of, uh, uh, you know, neck and neck with, you know, and those, you know, I, we were kind of on the same career path and those guys are, you know, captains or, or battalion chiefs, or they're still lieutenants and they're on great companies and they're having a great time. Um, the, the union there is a phenomenal group of people. They really support their guys. Um, they really take care of their guys. They do great things for them. The retirement system is great. I mean, you know, it could have been, a, it could have been, you know, I, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have lost any sleep over staying there. You know, I, I think that, you know, I don't know that I would have the experience that I have now if I had stayed. Yeah. Um, I think I would have run about eight, nine more years worth of medical locals and box alarms and gotten the associated experience with it. But, you know, I, I, I've gone to a lot of fires since then, but aside from going to fires, I, I've had the opportunity to build fire trucks, write policies, change fire departments, uh, you know, and, and, you know, really have my hand in a bigger picture that I feel like, honestly, and this probably just sounds like a bunch of altruistic bullshit, except I mean it, you know, I truly feel like I'm making a change that's going to that's going to better serve the envir- the, 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 the generation that comes after me, right? No, and I love that. And I, I think that's the, that's the crazy thing about life. You never know how it's going to play out. Man. And, and I'm a firm believer. I don't dwell, right? You make a decision, you move on, right? You can't dwell. And, and I think, though, I, my question I wanted to ask you was to, to take all the experience that you have and then to walk into a new department in a, in a chief position, right? I mean, you bring so much with you. Um, how accepting are departments for your views, points of view, and where you come from, and then also you maybe having to um, compromise? And how, how difficult is it for you to compromise maybe some things that you're not wanting to or willing to compromise, but you have to because of the transition? Uh-oh. Oh, they freeze up. He froze up. Technical difficulty at the moment here. Nick froze up. He's that, or he just doesn't want to talk to us. One or the other. But I, I That's think right. he froze up, Rob. <laughs> yeah, Nick, if you hey. brother sign out, sign back in. It's the joys of uh, the joys of Zoom, right? There he goes. He's out. Hopefully, he comes right back in. So we lost him. Everybody that's watching, we absolutely appreciate the uh, the incredible viewership we got going right now. It means the world to us. And, uh, Nick's killing it, man. Some good stuff. We are getting towards uh, the middle of the podcast. So what I want to do is ask all of you that are watching right now, um, as you'll see in a few minutes, Nick popped out. His, his screen froze up. He's coming back in now. But guys, oh, there, back in. there he is. Um, is that- we're going to go back after some, some – yeah, you froze up on us and then took off. I thought maybe you didn't like my question. No, I th- I think it's the propaganda, guys. You, you're getting too close to the secrets, and uh, you know <laughs> they've got their hooks in the internet companies. They're gonna they shut might, this man. thing down. They might, but we're we're a very small <laughs> fish, brother. Nobody even knows who we are, so no worries. But it's uh, the slug of the American Fire Service KGB. They're saying he's gonna tell the secrets. That's right. You know? That's right. Shut it down. Shut it down. <laughs> but, it's a gusset Nakatomi. <laughs> shut it down. So listen. So. Real quick, for everybody watching, because when you ducked out, I was just saying, for everybody watching, um, I really want people to start throwing some questions into the chat section of the YouTube Live. Um, we love to entertain some questions. Nick wants to answer questions. So, um, you know, if you guys out there watching have any idea or anything that you want to do, 
or talk about or content. And it can be tactical. It doesn't need to just be culture, tradition stuff. It can absolutely be tactical. Nick um, and I talked about it before. We're happy to jump in and, uh, and give you some points of view and some ideas. So, Nick, just back at you real quick, just to bring it back to where we were. Um, I asked about transferring or moving on in your career. And sometimes you have to compromise. Sometimes you have to uh, compromise some of your own um, knowings and understandings about yourself or the fire service in general, because going in, you have to learn the ways of their department. They have to learn the ways of Nick Martin. And then you find that compromise. How difficult was that for you? Well, you know, I don't know if I cut off before I said it, but I can tell you for a fact, the difference between being an expert and being an a-hole is an airplane ticket. You know, I mean, I, I, for, for real, you know, I mean, um, it is very, that is a very difficult rank transition because, and I've made it twice. Um, the departments generally hire two things from the outside, rookie firefighters and fire chiefs. That's, that's what most fire departments hire from the outside to go in at any kind of other level, kind of a mid-level chief or, 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 you know, officer kind of position is, is very unusual. Um, yeah. and especially in a bigger department, like, you know, I, some guys that they don't know, Columbia, I mean, Columbia is a, a, you know, 30 station fire department. It's a 600 member, 600 member job, you know, and I came in as a battalion chief and the chief of training. Right. And I thought I was going to have a swimmingly good time. Um, because you know, my experiences during the truck class and things like that, I mean, it was very good. Um, and then, you know, I, I think it's just, you know, it's, it's on, of course, it's a little bit on me is there's just cultural differences, I think. Sure. And the interesting, the interesting thing that is that, you know, you, you would go from one fire department to another, and you would assume that everything is in that fire department the way it is in the fire department you've come from. And, and, and everything from little things to big things, that's not the case, you know, and, and one thing, uh, it, it's just an interesting commentary to think that there's, there's something that you might do every day in your fire department, that if you were to do somewhere else, they would find that offensive. And, and if you were, to, and there would be something that you would find offensive, that if you didn't do it in every other, every day in the other fire department, they would find that strange. You, you know what, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, you know, it, it, it is, a, it is a difficult transition. And I think, you know, a lot of the, um, you know, what I, I, I've been a training chief, you know, two different departments now. And, and what I've learned that that role is for, for better or worse, it's, a, it's a change agent. Right. I mean, because that's what tra that's what training is, is training changes, right? Training should in general make you better. If anything, it should, should change your culture. And, and I'm not saying that I'm better than anybody else, but my job as the training chief is to challenge you, right. Is yeah. to make you better is to challenge the way that you're thinking is to make you step your game up. Um, and we talked about that a few minutes ago, that challenge um, is not welcome by everybody. Right. You know, is, is not welcome by everybody. No, I appreciate you sharing because I think that's an important conversation because, you know, as you transition through your career, most of us uh, have been in more than one department. And, you know, I see some of the comments in the chat going on right now about, you know, how do I, how do I, trans, uh, you know, um, uh, how do I uh, uh, transition well? How is, you know, how, how do we find a connect between what I know and what they know and, and being able to maybe swallow your pride a little bit to, you know, to, to learn their ways before you can excel. I mean, those are all conversations that happen daily. So going forward, brother, you know, I was going through some of the pedigree. I sat through your class. Um, being a chief in uh, Salisbury these days, you still get to go to fires. You still get to be a oh, fire. Yeah. Oh, I, bro, I had to turn it down a minute ago. I'm, 
if, you, if we you get the car right now, I hope you guys have another conversation planned. <laughs> yeah, I, that, that's, that, that's what I love is, you know, so we're, we're a smaller job. Um, I guess it depends on what kind of jobs you come from, whether we're smaller or bigger, but we're about a hundred member department. You know, we're building a sixth firehouse. We have 23 to 25 guys on duty every day. Um, you know, and run about seven, 8,000 runs a year as, as a department. So, you know, um, that, that is a smaller fire department than Columbia and it's a smaller fire department than DC. But what that means is for me that I have more opportunity to have involvement in things that somebody in my position in a larger fire department might not have their hand in. You know, yeah. I go to pretty much, I go to pretty much every box alarm, uh, you know, depending on what my arrival order is and whether that's a, uh, a, a box alarm or a fire in our city or whether it's a mutual aid fire, I could be doing anything from commanding a fire to, to being on the end of the nozzle or being on a roof, right? So, so you run you know, as the like as an extra chief then? Yeah, so we have a on we have an on duty battalion chief, and then um, we have uh, we have an, like the off duty battalion chiefs and off duty training officers basically share a rotation for battalion two, which is kind of an on call battalion, and then myself and all the other staff chiefs, you know, are basically. Uh, by the books on call 24 seven, but basically try and kind of be basically lack of a better term, be around as much as you can and, 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 and take turns kind of giving each other breaks. So yeah. you're kind of like always on call basically. And I, I, you know, if you haven't figured it out by me, I love that. I mean, that's what I want to do. Of course. <laughs> you got a buggy to take home or. Oh yeah. It's, it's, uh, I pointed out the window. Yep. Yep. So we all take home cars. Yep. Do you live within the city limits or, or close by? I, I live in the, in the county, so I live in a mutual aid fire district, but gotcha. I, I live a quarter mile from the city line. But if know. a box goes out for, for work, I mean, you can, you can pick up and go. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm expecting oh, yeah. to. Yep. Yeah, that's a nice setup. That's awesome. So let me ask you, Red. So I'm reading some of the comments here. I asked people to start throwing out some questions for you and so on. And other than uh, some ball breaking, which, of course, is, you know, par for the course, of course. Uh, you know, he says, uh, Corey asks, as a chief, how do you balance being a fireman and being a chief, but still showing you love being the best and not ignoring your admin duties? So I guess it's the balance between the admin and being an aggressive fireman. Well, I, I think, you know, a good administrative chief does, you know, what, what makes a good administrative chief is that they do administrative things that support the mission of good firemen, right? And that, that's part of the aggressive command, aggressive firefight. I mean, you know, a lot of people picture chiefing, you know, like, unfortunately, about five or less percent of it is is wearing white hats on fire grounds. You know what I'm saying? The rest of it is is in the firehouse and, and setting up an organization that is going to be desirable to be at, that is going to attract firefighters that are going to perform good service. And, and firefighters that perform good service are people that are ate up with the job. That, that's who I want coming when my house is on fire, people that are ate up with the job. So you have to build an organization that supports that. And that means, you know, hiring people that fit that mold. That means training people to a constantly upheld standard. And that means buying equipment and writing policy that makes sense, right? So, you know, basically, you know, what my job is at that level is to enable all, all of those things that I, all the things that I would want to happen if I was a backstep firefighter, it's my job to enable that. You know what I mean? And it's my yeah. job to hold that, hold that expectation and to inspire people as to what level we're supposed to be at. 
I, you know, and I love that, man. I love being able to watch guys lift each other up. Um, I don't think that I, it's there. Um, it's there, but sometimes you got to look really hard to find it. You know, I think it's important when, when the guys need a pickup, they get that pickup. And, uh, and it's usually those same group of guys that are the ones that are doing that enabling to really, um, you know, lay that foundation to push those guys a little bit further by giving them that pat on the back when they need it. Yeah, I was just saying, I think it's the thing that you do really well because we see like your social media posts, like, you know, right. guys are out there running an, you know, an average alarm and they got the tower ladder up and you're talking about the importance of reps and it's like reinforcing that good culture in that department as they're going out just on what other people might say like, ah, it's just a typical run. I'm going to sit here in the truck and you guys are all in on it and you're, you're acknowledging that. I think it's a, it's a, huge step especially coming from the chief because you know yeah and and talking about that i'll just be as black and white as i can be about that people that love doing that people that love going to a fire alarm and setting up the rig and and coming off the rig with all their gear and tool all that kind of stuff the people that love doing that are the people that want to be good firefighters the people that don't yep. want to do that are lazy yep. and, and and don't have they either think they're good they're too good for it um, or they don't have an interest in it. And neither of them are the people you want when it's your house on fire, right? But I, you know, absolutely. every one of us needs reps. You know, and every I, one of us. Go ahead, Nick. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, no. No, I was just ranting. It's what I do. One well, of the guys properly said on the chat, that's the Delaware County in me. So <laughs> I, 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 will I, say, I will say this, brother. Like your page, though, like now more than ever, social media, you know, we always talk about it, you know, as I always see it as a good thing. You know, there is going to be those those negativity and the shit bags on there and everything else. But, you know, the, the ability now to find content such as yours, where you're showing off the fact that your department takes pride in laying in, throwing ladders, even on a, on a you know, a smoke and cooking call and, and getting the reps in, if you will, right? I, you know, now more than ever, it's so influential on the channels that we're on. And I think it's so important. And I think that lays a foundation for guys wanting to be better. Yeah. At, at, absolutely you know uh, and and i really mean you know our, our guys i think you know 90 percent of our guys love it you know and and they 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 could good people that want to be firefighters want to go to the firehouse and do firefighting things you know what i mean people that want to be good firefighters don't don't go to the firehouse and say i hope i don't have to put my gear on today i hope i don't have to take a hose off a fire truck today you know what i mean i mean you know so yeah, and a lot it's of all you know but a lot of that conversation too, though, is, you know, when you try to create that culture, if the department's not familiar with it and, and you have this younger blood who is being influenced by people like yourself and other pages that are out there and things that they're seeing that aggressive departments are doing, they typically tend to get a lot of pushback from the older members or the people that have said that we've always done it this way, right? And that's a constant battle. And, and we get a lot of conversation back and forth on DMs and so on of, how do they combat that? How do they deal with those older members? How do they deal with the naysayers and the command staff that doesn't uh, endorse it? See, the, the thing is, is what you're talking about there is, is, is again, a cultural change, right? Because yeah. if, if you went to Kentland, you know, you, an older member there would be some guy in his 60s who would come in and punch you in the face because you didn't lay lines or you didn't run to the rig or you didn't stretch, you know, throw ladders. Like, they're, 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 they're enforcing the way we did it because that's the way you did it, right? But so when you're talking about making a change in an organization to maybe to maybe bring in that kind of culture, what you, the, the key thing that you have to do is, is, is 
there's never a reset button where everybody, like nobody's been here before. We're starting a fire department from scratch, guys. What do you want to do? Like you're always going to be dealing with, right. a, with, a, with a generation that didn't do it the way you want to do it. Absolutely. So you have to be very careful that you don't make that sound like, hey, you guys were a complete waste of space and did everything right. wrong for your entire career. And now we're here. We're going to do it right. You get what I'm saying, right? You got to find a way to. Yeah, you got to find a way to make the change without without making the other guys feel like they did everything wrong their whole career. You know, and often you got to often you got to find the salesman in your department, right? You got to find that mid range guy that can talk to the older guys and 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 equate the uh, the understanding of the young guys, and they need to be the voice of reason to be able to get that out there and to educate the older guys as to why we want to make these changes and educate the younger guys that it, it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take some time to change a culture. Yep. Ab absolutely. Yeah. You, you got, I mean, I am about the most impatient person I know, um, but you've got to be very no. careful. I imagine that probably Delaware County again, but um, you know, you got to be careful. You don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's very easy to piss people off so much that your ability to lead the message is gone. You know what I mean? And, and when people will no longer listen to you because you're just being too, you're being too pushy, you're being, you know, um, you know, you're being too doomsday or you're being, you know, too much of an a-hole. When you lose that ability to carry the message forward, I mean, you know, you're out of the leadership role because nobody's listening. Yeah. It's a constant struggle. And I think that the thing is though, is that as much as uh, a lot of guys want to instill the change, there's a really finite way of figuring out how to establish that change and it takes time yeah and i was just going to say i think that's one of the things too is to remind everybody like you have to this is a long this is a long game when you're talking about changing culture and i know like i like to use the example of my own department is that you know i started going to hyattsville and next thing i knew i was like hey like there's this Minuteman load it works really really fucking well we should use it and People are like, ah, I don't, I don't want to learn how to like the flat load's real easy, and I don't have to think about it. We've always done it this way. It took, I think, almost five years for us to finally change over. And when it happened, the literally the people who were the loudest in the room against doing it were like, "Hey, we saw this thing, and it's we're, we're going to switch to this." And I was like, "Good job! Like this is, you know, what? show show it to me." And I had to play dumb. Yep. And, but it, it got the culture changing. And that was like, I don't want to say anything like fell in the plate, but like that's what started getting guys to understand like, hey, we're moving forward. And there were other things that changed in administration and, and promotions and everything else that started that cultural change to kind of make it about fires and not as much about the ambulance again. And it's just that have, a, have that long game uh, in, in your sights because if you don't, like you, you, it's very easy to get discouraged and give up and you have to keep at it, you know? Yep. That, that's a hundred percent right. That's, there's two good points in that, right? You know, whenever possible, let somebody else champion the change and don't rub it in their face. Right. So like I, yeah. I've had that exact same experience you talk about there. Like, you know, you've been talking about Minutemans for five years and then finally somebody else is like, you know what, we should do this Minuteman thing. Let them, let that ship sail. The worst thing you can do That's is right. say, I've been telling you that for years. <laughs> you, you, you know, rub, let me rub your face in this because yeah. you're, now you're turning off, right? I mean, let, let them run with it. Let, that, let somebody else join you in championing the change. And, and the other thing that's, that's, you know, 
it's my you know if my wife's listening she's gonna say you're full of shit because you need to follow your own advice but um you know incremental change is better than no change right Right. you know it it doesn't all have to be black and white like if you're here today and you and you know you got to be here well you know what getting here is better than staying where you're at you know what i'm saying and maybe if you can move it incrementally forward you can get a little bit more buy-in you can get a little bit more people to jump on the bandwagon and, and maybe that maybe the remainder of that change will accelerate a little bit more quickly. But, you know, it doesn't have to be all or nothing, you know, because typically yeah, when you make it all or nothing in, in almost any scenario in life, it usually ends up being nothing. Yeah, you're right. always, you're always inches, inches are always going to get the feet and feet are always going to get the yards and yards going to get you eventually a first down or a touchdown. So. Wow, Rob, that's, that's, I like that. That's good. Write it down, Jeremy. You're going to forget it. I don't know how to write. I don't have my crayons with me. Let's move on here. Let's start talking tactical stuff. I mean, this is what you do. You love firefighting. You love getting snotty. Um, You said with your current chief job added as the extra chief on the box, you can pretty much uh, be assigned to any position on the fire ground, right? So um, Lido here, uh, Mike uh, Lydon from uh, uh, Boston, he's a friend, and he, he put up a he put up a comment, and uh, it's a tactical comment, a tactical question. He says he wants to know your take on the, how important the roof report is to the OIC and its level of importance. So the roof report to the OIC and the level of importance on the fire ground. Well, so re- rewind, rewind a whole bunch of steps to get there. Um, Do it. You know, it is you know it, when I'm in command of a fire. I'm an in the car guy, but I, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that where it lies and say that I'm, I'm a stationary command post guy. And I think that most chiefs are. Most chiefs, probably in the 75 plus percent range, are going to establish command from some kind of fixed position. And, and what that means is whether they're in the front yard or street or in a car or out of back of a car, whatever it is, when you're in a fixed position, your view of a fire ground, regardless of what building type it is, is very limited. Um, yep. And so that means that you know the remainder of the information what you can't see yourself you have to rely on on getting getting from other people so there are a couple of reports that are very critical in kind of establishing um the tempo of the incident and the strategy and and tactics of the incident and that's you know the on-scene report by the initial arriving companies uh some kind of 360 report or especially a report from a rear um interior report and what i mean by that is like just kind of a, a real quick, what are the conditions on the floor? You know, chief, we're on the first floor. We got light smoke versus, hey, chief, we got smoke to the floor. You know, things like that. Um, and then the roof report. And and where I am really, um, where I really put a lot of emphasis on the roof report is on a flat roof structure. Um, on a peaked roof structure, I'm not saying that you don't need to do it. And I'm not saying that uh, it's not important. But the nature of a peaked roof structure you can, you can often see some of that from the street because of angles, you know what I'm saying? And one of the, one of the key things that you're looking for in the contents of a, of a roof report regarding a flat roof building are things like, you know, dead loads or, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, hatchways or chases or things of that nature. Um, and, and, you know, you're not generally going to have chases and hatches and dead loads on, flat, on peak roofs, if that makes sense. The other thing is that when you're dealing with a flat roof structure, you're often dealing with a, a building configuration, um, such as like a row home or a tight block, or you're dealing with a larger structure like a warehouse or an apartment house or something like that, 
where it's quite likely that the first person that has any physical ability to get look to get eyes on any other sides of the structure is the is the roof man, right? So you know, like in D.C., one of the first jobs of the of the roof man um, you know, was was to go around basically the perimeter of the building, right? To walk the perimeter of the building, look over the edge, and give any returns uh, about conditions or victims or things of that nature, you know, around the side of the building. So you know. What, how is it important it, to an incident commander? It's tremendously important because, but but all of those reports are important because good information, getting getting good correct information from reliable company officers makes an incident commander feel warm and fuzzy. Yeah. And an incident commander that is warm and fuzzy will let you fight fire hardcore. But when an incident commander doesn't trust the people or isn't getting good information or has freelancing going on, you know, those, those are company officer level problems, right? Freelancing, poor information, bad reputations. You know, if I'm on, if I'm in command of a fire and I got a tough looking fire and I know that the people inside are clowns and they're not giving me good information and half of them are freelancing and I can't control where they're at, you know, what's about to happen. We're going to yeah. rip, we're going to pull the rip cord. We're going to hit the eject button and we're going to roast hot dogs while we burn this place down. So, you know, that relationship between a company officer and an incident commander or, or giving good information to an incident commander is, is critical, not only in strategic decision making, but in just, you know, keeping the tempo of the incident under control, you know. Yeah, and, and I love that because I think, you know, getting good information comes from good firefighters, comes from good officers, right? And I'm a firm believer where, where I operate, our chiefs go to work. Um, where you operate, your chiefs, you go to work. Um, how important is that for the command staff to have um, geared up, packed on, ready to go um, chiefs in positions of, say, divisions, sectors, uh, you name it, any type of boss on the fire ground, that's a forward position? So the least important reasons for that, but, but reasons that are still important, is that it is inspirational for the guys to see senior leaders put on their gear in an air pack duck down and crawl down a hallway with them. Yeah. And it is valuable for those leaders to still understand and still be a part of what the firefighters are doing. Because when that, when that chief came down a hallway with you or made the fire floor with you, you know, six times last year, and now it's time to write a new policy, buy new hose, order new gear, or get a new fire truck, do you think they're going to be a little bit more oriented to, to what the right decisions are to make if their mind is still in firefighting and they're still participating in firefighting, right? So, you know, those are the, the lesser of the important reasons, um, but they are still, I think, very important in, in inspiring the guys and making sure that your heart is still, your heart always needs to be at the nozzle, right? You, you might not always be able to be on the nozzle, right? You know, but your heart always needs to be at the nozzle. You know, and you'll make better decisions regardless of how high your rank is, if that's where your heart always is. But, you know, functionally, and the most important reason is, is I can just, it's like 400 foot attack lines. I guess you're going to just have to take my word for it at some point. They work, right? And the other thing that really works uh, is, is dividing up a fire ground, right? The, the biggest reason that incident commanders get overwhelmed and, and uncomfortable and hit the eject button is because they're being task saturated. They have 10 or more people 
talking to them rapid fire. They're all talking to them. He's got to talk to all of them. They got people pulling on their shirt. They're going every which way and it's overwhelming and it's very, very stressful, right? So when you're able to take a fire ground and you're able to divide that scene up into manageable chunks, just, I mean, not to make this a class, but say, say, that, say, say you can divide the fire ground up where I'm going to divide this up so I, I, I can put three to five companies in all these areas, on the fire floor, on the floor above, doing the outside truck work, covering the writ, and then to whatever extent uh, I'm able, I'm gonna take another person that has the same level of experience and training and thinking as me, and I'm gonna put them up on that fire floor to be in charge, like running their own mini incident. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're the incident commander of the first floor. I'm the incident commander of the second floor. And, and I don't mean to say that there's more than one command on a fire ground, but you get what I'm saying? And, and the other thing that, that that does is, so now you have all the companies that are on the floor, first floor, are talking to the first floor boss, and, and all the companies on the second floor are talking to the second floor boss, and the only people that the incident commander is talking to is the bosses, right? And, you know, a lot of people, you know, uh, are like, why, why, the captain needs to do, that's a company officer. You know what a company officer job is? Leading a company. That's a company yeah. officer job, you know, leading your crew to make a fire attack quicker, leading your crew to get a search done quicker. And especially in an era where most of us are dealing with reduced staffing, that means that the officer is much more of a worker bee, right? I mean, you know, the big right. city fire departments, you know what an officer does in a lot of the big city well-staffed fire departments? They point a flashlight and they say, go over there and squirt water. You know, most fire departments don't have that luxury. Most guys are riding three-person engines or three-person trucks, you know, where the officer and the irons are splitting to each cover a room. Or, or the officer is going back to get more hose line, right? I mean, he's very engaged in the company-level operation. Now, you know, so if you're able to say, I'm going to take that monkey off your back, you don't have to worry about what's going on on this entire floor. Just get your job done, and then you talk to me, and I'll get you what you need. That provides a, a tremendous amount of relief to the company officer, and it provides a tremendous amount of relief to the incident commander. And it's like it's like being the cheese in a grilled cheese sandwich, right? And yeah, everybody no, I, knows the cheese is the best part. I get it. And the, and the thing is, too, is like even where Rob is, I mean, for God's sakes, I mean, most of you, as an officer, you're you're – doing a lot of grunt work when you're on a three-man truck company or a three-man engine company the boss doesn't have the ability a lot of times to be the flashlight holding boss i mean he's got to be thrusted into yeah. that position of control backup or nozzle because he's got to get that line into place you know we don't have yeah. that luxury a lot of times i mean across the country almost every single department's running shorthanded yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah. So, all right. Question wise, uh, let's talk about more, some more attack. 400 foot's a beautiful thing as a company officer. I love this. You're getting a lot of good feedback, Nick, on, um, on the chat here. Um, let's talk about your command class a little bit, if you wouldn't mind. I mean, I know you're a stationary chief. I know there's other people that believe in different, uh, different ways of managing the fire ground. Um, but maybe you can give us a couple more nuggets real quick about uh, that class and a few of the other classes that you're offering right now. Um, as a little teaser, maybe for everybody listening as to what, um, what you're offering. Well, I mean, I, I guess, you know, my big soapbox about the command stuff is, and, and you know, it's, it's just like, I watch this comment feed on the side and I, you know, I scroll Instagram and stuff, you know, every morning and, and you know how it is, man, you can take one swipe on Instagram and there's a picture or a video of a bunch of young bucks out in the engine bay and they're getting after it. They've stretched lines 15 times today. You know, they're, they're memorizing streets. I mean, they're just like ate up with it. Right. Um, and, and, you know, then 
that are learning these new things. They're learning how to do new aggressive tactics. And then they go to a tough fire and they're like, we could do this thing, right? The thing we've been working on, we could do this here and fix this problem. And so yeah. they go to the command post, they go, chief, let us do this thing. What's the chief say? No. And, and the chief says no, because they promoted so that they never had to ride a fire truck anymore. They promoted just so that they uh, could get a pay raise before they retire. They promoted because they never had the you-know-what to go inside of a fire, right? You know, they promoted for all the, the wrong reasons, right? And their heart is not at the nozzle anymore. And the other reason they say no is because there's a whole lot of them that uh, quite, quite frankly are scared shitless to run a fire ground because they were never trained how to run a fire ground. They listened to the radio for 15 years until it was their time to be in charge. And now they're just doing what they heard on the radio for 15 years. But do they really have any idea what they're doing? No, because nobody ever taught them a system. And they're very uncomfortable, right? They're very nervous on the fire ground. They don't trust other people because they're scared to death. They're going to be in charge of a line of duty death. And I understand that fear. But, you know, so I guess, you know, what I'm trying to do is if you go back to the beginning of that analogy there and you're talking about the guys that are running lines and memorizing streets and throwing ladders all day, what if we had incident commanders that were doing that, right? And, and I don't necessarily mean that they're the ones pulling lines or throwing ladders, not that that's ever a bad thing to do. But what I really mean is, you know, just like they're, they're honing the craft of pulling lines and throwing ladders, what if we had chief officers that were less worried about budgets and administration and contract negotiations and were more worried about command and control and strategy and tactics? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I mean, can you imagine yeah. if we had those two forces unite Right. I mean, if you had an engine and a truck that were ate up with pulling lines, forcing doors, cutting roofs, throwing ladders, and you paired them up with a chief that's sat in the office all day, maybe not even sat in the office. You get where I'm going with this. And he's studying yeah. strategy and tactics and he's studying fires and he's practicing his command and control. And you put those two on a fire together. Talk about an unstoppable force. Yeah, it's a win. You know, and, you know, and, and so, so many times I've seen that the limiting factor on a fire ground is not the companies, it's not the firefighters, it's the commander. Because we have allowed incident commanders to get so checked out and spend all their time sitting in meetings talking about bullshit, you know, when they have no idea how to command a fire ground. And don't get me wrong, we need good contracts and we somebody's got to balance the budget so we all get paid and all that stuff. But you can never forget that, you know, administrative drama will cause you a lot of heartaches, right? It, it can get you in a lot of trouble, but administrative drama will almost never kill a firefighter. You know what You know what kills firefighters? Poorly run firegrounds, poorly prepared firefighters, right? And, and, it, and at the core of our mission as, as fire officers and as fire chiefs, our primary mission is preventing a line of duty death. And, and most of that happens before the fire comes in. You know, you can listen to the case studies, you can listen to the audio, you can listen to some of the things I talk about in that class or whatever, when you're on a front long and things are happening, there is very little opportunity in there to infuse a solution. If yeah. the solution hasn't already been honed and developed and hammered into muscle memory before those guys are on the front lawn, there, are, there isn't going to be a, a, a gap in time in the oncoming tragedy where you're going to get to tell everybody what to do. Yeah, I think it's one of the lines that I love from Clint Smith, and he says you can't learn new skills in the middle of a, a, in the middle of a fight. And, you know, that's, that's exactly what you have to prepare yourself when it comes to that command point. You've got to get some environmental stressors out there. You've got to get your heart rate up. And then you've got to start thinking, because like you said, that those dominoes are going to start falling. And unless there's somebody to come in with a hand and knock the couple in front of them out and reset that, 
you know, it's just not going to happen. You're not going to learn, you know, if I, if, if I take, you know, wanted to uh, into a fight with you and you're a, you know, a, a Mai Tai fighter or something like that, and I'm a traditional boxer, it's going to be a hell of a time for me to try to learn these skills. So you got to do them beforehand. And I think it don't, not enough chief officers and not enough line officers yep. do that. Yep. So <clears throat> I love this comment. But, uh, what do you got? Go ahead, Rob. Just with the classes, uh, Nick, for for what you're teaching, like if you could reach out to those young firefighters and those young leaders, what is like uh, you know the three things that they can get out of the class that you think is like super important, like to, to plug your own product, not even so much as like the shameless plug, but to say like, listen, here's three things that I didn't know or three things that I've really learned a lesson on. And this is, you know, why this class, why this class is important for you to come to, or it just, you know, can help you here. Don't, don't make mistakes and embrace them, but these are some mistakes that I made. And, you know, here's how you can kind of make, make yourself better as an officer. So I'll give you at least one solid thing and I'll see if I can make up two others. But here, here's what I would tell you, regardless of your rank, regardless of your time and regardless of your position and regardless of your department, every run you go on, every fire you go to, assume from the moment it is dispatched that it is going to be the worst fire of your entire life and do everything necessary to be successful if that were to turn out to be true. And, and I could really rewind that by, you know, not, it, by taking away when it's dis when you come to the firehouse in the morning, when you assume duty in the morning, assume that that is going to be the worst day of your life. You're going to go to the worst fire you're ever going to see. And, and you need to just, from the moment, everything you do needs to be aligned with being ahead of the power curve, setting up for success. In the, it's the reason behind, you know, the posts about, you know, it's not full unless it's full, you know, where I'm putting 4,501 PSI in my bottle. I'm not going to have, you know, 4,499. You know, it, it, it's the reason for getting the reps on the fire ground. It's the reason for running for the rig. You know, it, it's every, everything is the worst thing. And, and I, I, I see one of the guys in there, you know, asking about the one-room fire. I, I treat a one-room fire like it's the biggest conflagration I've ever been on in my life. You know why? Number one, it, it might become that, right? You know, you know, what, you know how a two-room fire starts? A one-room fire. And then it becomes a three-room fire. And then it's a whole damn floor. And then it's on the floor above. And then there's five maydays. You know, I've been on that fire. And I think other guys on this call have been there too. You know, so every fire starts out minor, right? And, right. you know, right. so number a, a huge piece of that mindset is the preparation that tonight might be the night, right? And you know what? If it isn't, and I hope it's not, then we just got a great round of practicing right? We got free training in a real environment under the real time constraints and the real concerns of not knowing what's actually happening here. What better repetition and mindset and habit building thing is there? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And the only yeah. reason really not yeah. to do all the proactive things is laziness. To not have to put the ladder on the rig, to not have to put your gear on, to not have to put hose back on the rig. That, that, I don't make decisions based on the extra effort that might be involved. I make the extra, you know, I make the decisions based you know, on, on, uh, on the benefit that I'm going to get out of it. Um, so, you know, that, that is definitely one thing th that I would say for sure. Um, you know, regarding the command stuff, I, I would say the other, the other thing is it's your job to do every single thing right. It's your job to do everything right, right? As an incident commander, you are probably the only person on the fire ground or one of the very few people on the fire ground who is almost certainly not going to get killed. 
right? If there's a line of, if you're in command and there's a line of duty death tonight, you're going to watch it happen. You're going to be there afterwards. You're going to go to the funeral. You're going to meet their family and you're going to spend the rest of your life thinking, is there anything that I could have done to right. have prevented that? Right. Don't let the answer be yes. And don't let the answer be maybe, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, yeah. I, I think it's really all just, all just rooted in mindset kind of things, you know? What the, uh, the, the story that you attached, you talked about that um, four-story brick apartment building in D.C. with nothing evident and how it became one of the largest fires in, in Rob, Oklahoma. Rob, I was just going to say that, Brad. I was just going to bring that up. Sorry, I didn't mean to steal your thunder. No, um, no, no. Do it. Do it. Talk about it. But, like, you know, it, it kind of hits on that point of of not not treating like a fire, uh, you know, any kind of alarm or something. Like, it's, it's you know, nothing showing or there's it's just a routine run uh, for those smells, bells, and people who fell, you know? I mean, that, so that, that you're talking about the 31, 3145 Mount Pleasant Street Northwest, I think it was. Um, I was riding the line on engine 11 uh, that night, which means I had the nozzle position. So knowing that the outcome of that is a demolished city block, I guess maybe you don't want my advice on the nozzle position. But um, so anyway, you know, we, <laughs> truck guy, what do you want from me? I guess. But, um, so we pull, you know, that, that, that box comes out midnight-ish, plus or minus, uh, not an uncommon neighborhood to run a box, you know, and, and it wouldn't be uncommon at all to have, just have food on the stove or any of those things any time of the day. Pull mm -hmm. up, truck, truck got there just ahead of us. I remember the lieutenant giving the size up, you know, exactly that four-story brick, nothing evident, you know, and we stretch all the time. So, you know, even though it's nothing evident, I'm already stretching off the rear. We stretch our, our 350. Um, and I remember going through the uh, lobby doors, you know, into the, into the, you know, entryway or whatever. Um, and there were occupants coming out, which was the first thing that was unusual because usually they yeah. don't come out for bells and food on the stove. So they're yep. coming out. Um, and one of them goes, yeah, there's a fire on the third floor. I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> and so we go to the third floor and we make the third floor and, and there's smoke like down to the floor. Um, and if you look at the pictures of this, this is a 200 by 100 building. So it's a pretty big building. Um, and there's smoke down on the floor. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, we have an apartment off and like somebody left the door open, right? That's why the hallways charge. So we mask up, call for water on the line and we're going down the hall. Um, and now we're looking for fire, right? And we start forcing apartment doors and like can't find any fire, can't find any fire. Um, and then like all of a sudden we're about like, like a, a quarter of the way around the building, um, you know, fire just starts shooting out from the floorboards, right? And around our, around oh. our knees, um, starts breaking out from the walls. Um, and, and now we begin to realize, you know, this fire, uh, you know, what we didn't know, and I'm going to come back to what not knowing here in a second is what we didn't know um, is that that fire had started in the basement, um, according to the investigators, up to two hours before the fire department was called. And you're talking about a, a late 1800s, early 1900s building um, with all the associated shaft ways and, you know, sure. construction problems and things like that that fire had been running the walls for up to two hours before we got there. And the reason the fire department got called is because it started breaking out on floors. You right. know what I'm saying? Um, the, the truck, the, the roof team and the truck makes the roof real fast, really fast in DC. So you're talking within a couple minutes of arrival. The truck, the truck made the roof and said there was fire already shooting out of the soil pipes when they made the roof. So, wow. I mean, it was, the thing was bottom to top, you know, yep. and we just didn't know, we just didn't know. And, you know, the net result of that fire was obviously fire on all floors. There were over 200 civilians in the building. 
Um, the fire went to eight alarms. We had five maydays during the fire. The entire building collapsed in the middle of the fire. The church behind it was its own two alarm fire. I mean, it was like, you know, it was like towering inferno shit, you know, but I mean, it was, I mean, at least for me, I mean, it was, you know, that was my big fire or one of my big fires, you know, it was a pretty big night and it, it was amazing um, that, that we didn't lose a civilian. We didn't have any major injuries. All the maydays were resolved with, with minor injuries, um, you know, and, and I mean, that the outcome was just a burnt down building is amazing. And I think speaks to the other preparedness, but you know, there were shortcuts involved in that. You know, one of the, one of the primary, um, one of the first job of the second in engine in DC, at least at that time, I assume it's still the same now, the first job was to always check the basement, always check the, it didn't matter what kind of building you were going to, and it doesn't matter where in that building the fire, I mean, if the fire was blowing out the 12th floor, you checked the damn basement. And a lot of that rooted back to previous line of duty, a number of previous line of duty deaths being in unchecked basement fires. So the second in engine's job, just to give you the whole thing, was they would lay a line to the rear. It was mostly alleys in the city, and they would lay, right. a, their job was to cover the rear, and then that usually provided access to the basement, and they would check the basement. And so, you know, the fire was reported on the third and fourth floor when the second in engine got there. So they half-assed the basement check, um, and they checked like half of it or less, and that part wasn't on fire, but the other half was. So there was a real, we got a report back that the basement's clear, but the basement was not clear. <laughs> you know right. what I'm saying? So right. that, that was kind of yeah. a little bit of half-ass there that, that, that led into problems. But I mean, you know, at least you asked what's another point, you know, what's a message I can hammer home? Um, you know, never, never forget that the fire always gets a vote, right? We get cocky. Yeah. We get cocky because we think we're good, because we train hard, because we're surrounded by other aggressive firefighters in a busy fire department. That will never outdo the fact that a fire always gets a vote, right? You can size it up as good as you want. You can bring as much experience as you want. You can do 360s till your feet fall off. There will always be something going on at night's fire that it will be impossible to know about until tomorrow morning, right? right. And some nights, some nights that's a minor thing, and some nights that's a major thing. Right. But that fact um, is what will what will make firefighting always dangerous, no matter how good you are, and no matter how proactive you are, and no matter how much size up you do, there's always going to be something you don't know, right? And that's what's going to make our job dangerous, and unfortunately, it's what's going to keep keep firefighters, you know, getting killed. But, you know, the, the other thing with that, and it's associated point, is that remember, any fire ground has two sets of problems on it, right? So I just talked about one of them. One of them is the fire gets a vote problems, right? But the other set of problems are problems that the fire department brings to the fire. They bring untrained people on crappy equipment, with no expectations, with bad training, with poor policies, they, in, in, the, in the interest of time, the fire department brings a shit show to the fire, right? And so when you, when, you, when, you, when you combine the problems of the fire getting a vote, the natural unknowingness, and you bring any problems to it, you're, you're, I mean, you're on a path to failure, you're right? You're on the path from to a hard landing right there, right? So, you know, while you'll never be able to fix, or there are very limited things to fix the fire always gets a vote thing. What fixes that is proactiveness, right? But even that's not going to fix all of it. You got to make sure that you're structuring your organization and structuring your company that you're not bringing any additional problems to an auto already problematic event. You know what I'm saying? 
So there's right. the three. <laughs> and well said. I mean, and I, I think yeah. um, all all three of those points, um, all of us relate to and all of us understand. So I, awesome, awesome points of view, brother. A um, couple other things real quick. Uh, I'm just reading. I don't know if you've had the ability to read any of these as we've been going. Um, a lot of questions about culture and, re, you know, getting guys excited uh, and so on. But I want to talk uh, a little more tactics because I know a lot of guys like to subscribe to that. Um, battalion drills, talk about training culture. How about training culture in a, in a department where the department wants to train, but the training department's lacking? I had a conversation the other night with a mid-sized career department where they basically stick guys in the training division, and it's not really a priority. Yeah. What you, you've got to look. You, you've got to look at what's the culture that you're assigning the training, right? I mean, what what's the stigma of being there? There there are certain fire departments. Um, I can think of some by name that 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 going to the training division is among the highest honors yes. that you could get. You right. know, I mean, culturally within that organization, like that is that is like the biggest medal you could have is that you know you went to the you were asked to go to training, right? And there are some fire departments where, you know, the training division is located in an old room, in a hole, in an old room, three levels below the basement. You know what I'm saying? And, and so I, I think it's a natural follow to, to, to see which is coming out of which environment. So you've got to look at, you know, what, what is your department, what is the value that your department is assigning to that? Um, but, you know, I, I think that there's also some true, I mean, see, I mean, most people are going to have to deal with what that, the hand that's dealt there, honestly. But, um, you know, or, or whatever level you can exert to change that. But, you know, you can all, just because a training bureau exists does not outsource your responsibility to train, right? That's right. You know, every one of us has a responsibility to train ourselves and train our crew, right? You know, I, you know, I always love the analogy, you know, you know, if you see a couple of ugly kids walking down the street and you follow them home, what are you going to you know, knock on the door? What are you going to find? Ugly parents. It's genetics. You know what I'm saying? But, you know, so if, if you see a couple of crappy firefighters <laughs> on a fire ground and, and you follow them back, what are you going to find? Shitty That's leadership. fantastic. I love that. I mean, absolutely. That should be like a point. Yeah, man. man. You, should, you should wrap that up and package that. I like that analogy a lot, bro. I got it in the class. I don't know what else to do with that. That's good. I'll talk, I'll talk to you afterwards. We got some ideas. But, that's but brother. It's, it's fact. I mean, it just makes sense, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it, 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 again, it's all, it's all culture. And, and you know what? I mean, culture is it's the hardest thing because it's the one thing that, that they, they can't buy you. They can't issue it to you. You know, they can't, they can't even really order you to have it. You know what I mean? Culture is a, a self-subscribed thing. You've got to find a way to make it sexy, to make it the cool thing to do. You know, there, there's lots of pitches and, and, and in many ways, you know, like I'm a used car salesman with that shit. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, because we're talking about, we're talking about life, we're talking about life-saving action here, right? What I need you to do is to develop the mindset, to develop the, high, the, the habits, to do the right things on a fire ground tonight. So whatever it is I got to tell you or say to you or, or, or whatever path I got to lead you down, if it leads you to the mindset that leads you to, to develop the habits, you bought the car. What, you know what? You drove it off the lot. That's the end of my job. You know what I mean? Sales, salesmanship. Yeah. 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 You know, so, so, I mean, in many ways there, you, you've got to understand your audience and, and sometimes you have to, you have to be willing to craft the message. You know, you've got to be willing to, to craft the message to what is going to make the sell to that audience. What, what is it, you know, what is it that's going to appeal to them out? 
Yeah. How do we entice guys to train? How do you, how do you entice, you know, uh, you know, uh, I'm looking at the comments here, I moved to a new shift. I got two senior guys above me and they don't train as much as they did as I did on my old shift. How do I entice these guys? How do I get these guys excited? Well, number one, you know, I, it goes back to something we talked about earlier. Whatever you do, don't do or say anything that makes them feel like, you know, this guy thinks he's better than us or, you know, look at this hot shot. Like, you got to stay away from that, you know. So you got to make sure you, you walk a little gingerly there. You, you said something early in there. They're senior guys, okay? So they might be senior slugs. I don't know. But you got to treat them with some respect, right? They, they've earned their – they've done their time. They've earned their spot. Um, and they might not be, you know, the greatest firefighter on the fire ground, but if you don't show that seniority some respect, then um, you're going to lose them, right? You're not going to get anywhere. So I, I would be looking at those guys and say, what, what, what does this guy do really well? Like, what can I, what can I, what can I go and get from him that might bring value to me, but is also going to open the door for a relationship with us? And that could be like, yeah. you know, this guy makes the best damn home fries at breakfast ever. I'm going <laughs> to learn. I'm going to learn that. Right, because if it wasn't if it wasn't for a 16 engine and Tower Three, I still wouldn't know how to peel an onion. I'm telling you. Uh, so uh, you know, maybe I go to this. <laughs> hey, this guy knows the streets really well. This guy, uh, you know, he's a good cook. You know, this guy's whatever he's into. Like, you know, go go to go to his level. Go to his passion, and and, and ask That's him good. that. You know what I'm saying? Open a door and build a relationship. So first off, now if anything else, he doesn't think you're an asshole. So that's always a good step one in most scenarios. And, and then after that, you know, I think you got to kind of try and figure out how you can gently introduce things or, or, or how you can maybe ask them to show you something, you know, yeah, and then no, maybe that can lead into you showing them something. You know what I'm saying? A lot of it's relationship and opening the door. Yeah, that's good. That's really good, Nick. I mean, I like how you equate that. Absolutely. That finding what works doesn't have to be the fire ground, right? I mean, that's right. It be, that's right. It be anything. It brokers that conversation, gets guys comfortable, and then you find that common ground. I like that a lot. Um, a lot of questions about young officers, guys that are uh, stepping up into younger positions. Probably, uh, I know it's happening in the career department, but definitely happening in volunteer departments across the country where guys are taking on more responsibility maybe than they're ready for and putting themselves in those positions because the uh, maybe the lack of availability of guys to take those positions or willingness to step up. Um, any words of advice for a young officer that has a lot on their shoulders and a lot to learn? Uh, you know, stay humble. You're not as good as you think you are. Uh, none of us, none of us are. I'm not as good as I think I am. Uh, and the moment that you, that you, that you forget that, um, a fire is going to humble you and it's usually going to be uh, a bad night, right? Yeah. You know, it's usually going to be a reputation hit or it's going to usually going to be worse. So, you know, stay humble and, and stay hungry, you know, reach outside of your comfort zone. You know, I mean, you have to know the the rules and the and the and the the habits and the functions and the and the tactics and stuff of your department, um, you know. But I, I, you really expand that I think when you begin opening your mind to other people's and asking other people from other departments about their jobs and things like that. Um, you know, it's probably like a wore out uh, axiom or whatever. But I mean, there's no better way to learn something than have to teach it, right? I mean, you know, I I, I know that I am better at the things that I that I that I teach. Um, than I would be if I didn't, because I get more experience in talking about them and explaining them and having people challenge them and, and having to break it down. Like, you know, welcome the, welcome the challenge, right? When people challenge you, 
um, uh, they're like, well, this, you know, you're an idiot. Why do you think you ought to do that? What if this happens? Well, a lot of people just tend to want to, you know, like, all right, man, let's step outside and handle this, you know, and, and that's, you know, what you can't look at that as, as you can't look at that, even if it comes as an aggressive affront, you can't look at that as, as, uh, a negative thing. You've got to look at that as like, here is my opportunity to break this down and, and really explain it to the, to a person in this way. And if I do that, I will better understand it myself and they will now understand it. Um, or I might find out that I'm completely wrong, um, and learn yeah. something out of it myself. Right? Like, so, you know, anytime I'm challenged on something or I'm asked to explain something, there's got the outcome from that, that conversation is either going to reaffirm my position that the way I think, you know, that what I think right now is correct, or it's going to say, holy shit, I'm, I'm wrong. And it's going to reintroduce me. It's going to introduce me into another way of, of doing things better, whatever the thing is, you know? Definitely. No, good points. Good points. Real good points. Um, let's hit one more. And then I know we've been going for like an hour and 45 minutes already. And I don't want to, I don't want to tie you up all night. I mean, we can, we can talk for hours, but we're definitely going to have to get you back <laughs> another night on a, on a tactical night where we can really go after a lot of these questions. Cause there's a lot of questions going on that we just don't have the ability to answer all of them tonight. Um, real quick, I, your, your strong, uh, command presence and in, in what you teach with your aggressive command and so on. Um, Real good question. Top floor tactics. Mick asks uh, in the chat. He says, "Are you dividing and, com and commanding from afar regarding a one room fire? So even if it's on a small scale, can you just talk about that a little bit, Chief?" Yeah, and and that kind of goes exactly to what you know I was saying earlier is that um, you know so here, here here's how it would go, right? Um, so we we get dispatched for a box, and by the way. This represents about five different fire departments that I've been associated with operate would operate in a similar manner. Um, so you know we go we go and we have a uh, smoke shown from the rear of a two story house on the first floor or something like that. You know a couple engines in a truck are going to go to the, the fire floor. An engine in a truck are going to go to the floor above. You know we'll have um, uh, the outside teams of the truck company doing the vent work, and you'll have a couple companies on rent, right? So on, you know, in the systems that I that I am in favor of and, and have used, the the battalion chief is going to arrive um, and uh, sets up a stationary command post, right? And so for most of uh, you know, in most of my departments, that has traditionally been inside of a vehicle. Um, people have all kinds of what ifs, buts, and that's. I've I've driven on all kinds of surfaces. I have four low, four high, and uh, a pretty wild driving spirit. But I will put that vehicle wherever it is I need to. Um, and I assure you that I get a view of the fire building, right? And, and right. We, had, we had pretty tight streets in District, District of Columbia, um, and we were always able to get a pretty good view. But that, that's a whole rabbit trail I could go down. Sure. So this part, that guy's going to – and, and here, here's what I'll give you about command posts, because I have argued about command post locations like it's, you know, like you've offended somebody's mother with, like, half the country, all right? So here's what I'm going to give you is, is I don't care where you command a fire from. Okay, you can be on the front lawn, you can be uh, on, a on a street, you know, you can be at a back of a car, you can be in a car, wherever it is you want to be, you can be, but you've got to be able to see a strategic level view of the incident, which usually means the fire building and exposures to whatever extent possible. Um, and there is some issue with that with building size. Um, and you've, one of the key things is you've got to be distraction free, right? Because any, and I will tell you this, because I have commanded fires outside of cars, 
and uh, and the first thing that happens when you pull up on a fire and a company officers have experienced this too is everybody and their mother is coming over to you and they've got something to tell you right you know hey they just bought a cat their curtains are blue you know they're going they went out to get pizza they just got back from getting pizza hey what's going on here uh, there's a fire blowing up five windows is there anything else I can tell you about this but you know so there's all these people that are walking up to you and firefighters do, you know do it started the fire Huh? Do you oh, know yeah. what started yeah. the fire? That's always my favorite right. one. Yeah, yeah, we we know right now, ma'am. But you get what I'm saying is there's 20 different levels of distraction that come up to you. And every time you engage those people visually by looking at them or by talking to them, you take your eyes off the building, you take your mind off the operation and take your ears off the radio. And those missed moments are what lead to tactical fumbles and they're what lead to maidens. So, you know, I, you know, if you can find, if, if you can make sure that you're not missing radio transmissions and that you don't have people physically distracting you, then I don't give a shit where you set up command. All right. right. But, you know, for me, my best experience has been what I've told you. So now what people don't get is they're like, well, who's looking at the rear? Who's looking, you know, who's somebody, I got to go over here and look, I got to go see what the back's doing. I got to go over here and see what's going on over here. Right. Number one, statistically, running a mobile command post is a contributing factor in about 73% of actual real world maydays. So if we think that that's enhancing good fire ground operations, we might want to reevaluate that. Number two, when you insist that you as the incident commander have got to be the person that goes look at the rear, what did that just tell me? You don't trust the people. You don't, you don't trust, trust your anybody people. else. Listening to your people. Yeah. There's not anybody else here that I think is intelligent enough to give me that information. Right. So that's telling me that you don't have any trust in your people. And if you don't have trust in your people, that's either because you don't have a relationship with them or because they're not trustworthy people. But either way, if you lack that trust, the rest of the incident's not going to go well, no matter what, because you're essentially operating by yourself. Right. Yeah. And the other issue is if you've got to be the one that goes and looks down the side or goes and look at the rear, where does that stop? Right. I mean, you also going to go to the fire floor. I mean, why don't you right. check out the floor above while you're up there? Are you going to hit the roof while you're doing it? I mean, where does that you know what I mean? Where does I that get it. line? I get it completely. Absolutely. So how do we fill that void, right? So it goes back to something I said earlier is the, the reason commanders want to do that is they're uncomfortable as hell standing in the front yard only looking at one or maybe two sides of the building and not knowing what's going on in the rest. So how do you fix that? Number one, it starts before the fire with training your officers to give you the information you would need as if you had gone and gotten that information yourself. Does that make sense? Yes. If I trust my people enough to know that that captain is going to make the rear, that captain is going to make the fire floor, and if I need to know it, he's going to tell it to me, right? And then the next thing we do is we send at least two chief officers on every box at the, from the rip, right? So at the moment that it looks like it's going to be anything like a working incident, that second chief is putting on gear in an air pack, and for lack of a better term, you know, being respectful of time, they're going to be assigned the fire floor. So a lot of times what you see that, that second arriving chief doing is what of a lot of fire departments have their first arriving chief doing. They are going around. They are looking at the rear. They're going down here. They're going up to the fire floor. They are, they are doing those mobile positions. So it's not, it's not it, it, what I'm advocating is not which position you need to have. What I'm advocating is right. that you need both positions. Correct. You know what I'm saying? Both it. positions need to be filled early. I need the stationary chief whose ears on the radio, distraction-free, tracking the units on a tactical worksheet, right? And I need the mobile chief 
who's bouncing around, looking at things, talking to people, giving reports, making recommendations, and helping manage tactics. You know what I'm saying? I need both of those things in position at about the same time. Well right? said. So I don't, I don't know if that addresses the concern or the question or, or what, but, you know, I, I, Casey can't tell. I'm very, like, there's some, there's a lot of fire departments that are like, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll do that when we have 17 floors of fire in a 30-story building, right? Well, how often do you have that? I hope not often, right? And what I'm getting at, you know, uh, co you know <laughs> jokingly is, is that, oh, well, we'll do that on the big one. Right. Well, what's the big one? Right. Is the big one like a 400 by 400 warehouse or is like 17 floors of fire? Like, what's the big one? And how often do you run that? So, I mean, if you're not running that often, how often yeah, you're, are you doing? It? You're, not so if you're not You're not competent. Yeah. If you're not doing it, how, how competent are you at doing it? And how used to the system is everybody? By the way, I am 1000% confident that I can take the most basic looking fire in your most common building type with your best people on the fire scene and make it the worst night in your life. Sure. Right. Can I do that? Yeah. Cause what, what about a picture from side alpha or from the front of the building tells you there's not two kids trapped in the rear. Doesn't tell you the ceiling's not going to collapse on the hose team. Doesn't tell you somebody's going to have a mask emergency, right? Fire always gets a vote, right? All the, all these things have to link up. So, I mean, you know, like what I'm, I, Hey, look guys, bro, I'm a chief. I am too good to put my gear on an air pack on unless it's really a big fire. Like, what does that say? Right? I'm I don't need you. I don't need I'm here to work. Yeah. I'm here to work. Can I help you put the trash? I'll dump a cup of water on the trash can fire with you. Who cares? Right? And, and again, you rewind that mindset. If you still work for chiefs who want to put on gear in an air pack and be involved in everything from pulling a pack and hose, they probably lead their firehouses, fire companies, and fire departments better than those that don't because they're in the game. Their mind is in the game. They love it. Their heart's on the nozzle. Awesome. Chief, or I'm completely wrong. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, listen, I, I think you hit it. I think you hit it on the head there, man. And, and just looking at the reactions in the chat and everything else, I mean, you've been spot on tonight. And there's been a lot of um, a lot of uh, support and excitement in the in the page from everything from being reinvigorated back into the job and, and it's conversations like this. To guys uh, wanting to send this live feed to their command staff and training division, so um, I think I think we made an impact tonight. I just want to uh -oh. say thank you. We, we've been. Uh -oh. uh, no, nah, you're fine. Don't worry about it, brother. I, I got a. Uh, we need to send out a stack of hurt feelings reports. Um, <laughs> we need to collect it or what? Something tells me. Something tells me you filled out a lot of those. So some people better wear some steel-toed shoes tomorrow. Tomorrow, I mean, hurt toes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, probably. Probably. <laughs> Well, listen, Chief, thank you. Um, means the world for you to trust us to come on the platform and to just, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about your background. I mean, we, we didn't even get into a lot of, of, a lot of what made you who you are today, but it's evident to everybody here and everybody watching and tuning in tonight. Um, and people that follow you, you know, you, you do a lot of great things for the fire service. You have your social media pages and your training group um, and so on in your training courses that are really out there pushing the envelope on, teaching ours and, and teaching our people and wanting to make the job better. So uh, on behalf of, you know, National Fire Radio and all the guys here tonight, thanks, man. I mean, you're- Yeah, fun. thanks for coming on. Keep the content I, I, up. You know, yeah, it really, I, I mean, you, it's funny when I, it's funny when I have this conversation with guys and they say, well, it's not about me, it's about this and it's about that. I said, yeah, but without you, we don't have any of it. So you're one of those guys that are a mover and a shaker and you're making shit happen in the industry. So I thank you for that, brother. Thank you for bringing it in tonight. 
and trusting us with your story. So thanks so much for being here with us, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, man, absolutely. Thanks to everybody that listened. I mean, never, never, never be shy about standing up for what you believe in. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I just, I, I say what I think um, because I believe what I think, you know, and I try, I hope that I live what I think. I don't know, you know, but, you know, stand, never be afraid for being right. And, and sometimes it's not the most popular thing to do, um, but, you know, right is right. Awesome. So, Nick, what's next for you and where can people find you, brother? I mean, right now, man, I'm just holed up in my house, I guess, like everybody else. Uh, or you can find me on any fire ground they'll let me come to. Um, but, you know, you know, right now I'm just trying to do what I can for my job and trying to keep my guys motivated and, and staying hungry and remembering that there might be a pandemic, but there's still house fires. So, you know, keeping that angle going on. Um, a lot of the training that we're doing has been transitioned to the, on, the, the online stuff. I've been doing some webinars. Um, I got another webinar uh, coming up on Saturday. I think you can find the information on my uh, Instagram or Facebook feed, or I'm sure I posted it somewhere. We're going to talk about the inside truck company operations, um, you know, but, you know, and, and of course, you know, so you have a live, you have a webinar this weekend, right? Yeah. You know, this will be the third one. I've done it every Saturday in April so far. And it kind of just, honestly, it's a shit ton more work. I'm sure everybody thinks that, you know, like you probably, you know, you probably understand everybody thinks, oh, he just turns on the computer. <laughs> yeah. That's not well, hard, right? So easy. I, you know, uh, okay. no, yeah. I, I yeah. do. I mean, I do. I got, <laughs> I, without these guys, I got nothing. So, yeah. so I've been doing a ton of prep work trying to, trying to awesome. do that. Cause you, you know, when you talk about firefighting, everybody, you always want to be at a building or at a drill ground. It's hard to do it in a classroom. You realize how ridiculously difficult it is to try and relay a hands-on or tactical message over a computer where I'm yelling at a green light on my MacBook, on my MacBook you know what I'm saying? So, you know, we're all just trying to do, um, I think, what we can to try and, you know, keep the job where it needs to be during this weird time. But, you know, I'm all over social media. I love talking shop. Shoot me an email. Shoot me messages. It might not be right away, but I'll, I will try to get back to everybody that sends me stuff. Um, I try to give whatever advice I can, and, you know, I love talking shop. That's fantastic. And just your um, your training company and social media pages, brother, so people can find you. So, uh, well, I mean, what am I on Facebook? I think if you just search Nick Martin on Facebook, there's a picture of a guy in a fire hat. That's me. Uh, and then on, uh, you know, Instagram and on uh, Twitter, um, nmartin33. Uh, and then uh, the website is uh, combatreadyfire.com. Awesome, brother. Thank you awesome. so much, man. Chief, thank you. Thanks for being here tonight. Chief Nick Martin, Salisbury, North Carolina. Battalion Chief, thank you, brother, for being here. Um, means the world. Yeah, thank you, Nick. Uh, for all of you chiming in tonight, checking us out, following Nick tonight, we appreciate that. And uh, stay tuned. Nick's uh, audio will be out. This will be posted live now on YouTube going forward. Uh, and then on top of that, too, we have episode 56 rolling out which is Mark Gregory and Tommy Guys from PL Vulcan. Uh, and that is a fantastic episode as well that is being released right after this episode tonight too. So thank you to everybody checking in tonight. Um, we appreciate the loyalty, the friendship, and all the storytelling and the questions because without all of you, we have nothing. So I thank you. And Chief, thanks, Nick. Appreciate you being here. Thanks, man. Appreciate thanks, you guys. Chief. Good. Thank you. And everyone have a good night.